Crisis on Infinite Earths was not a reboot. Though often mischaracterized as such, Crisis on Infinite Earths was more of an attempt to streamline DC Comics, which by 1985 was composed of what really did seem like an infinite number of universes. You had Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-X, Earth-S, etc., etc., ad infinitum. They wanted to pull it all into one cohesive universe with one tight linear continuity. Released during DC's 50th anniversary year, Crisis on Infinite Earths officially closed out the Silver Age of Comics as it related to DC and issued in a new modern age that would see them produce some of the finest works of their long and illustrious history. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arion. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earth. The DC Universe will never be the same. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and aeroplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself. Hello there, and welcome the first episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. My name is Michael Bailey, and with me, and who you just heard, is my good friend and partner in this epic look at an epic series, Scott H. Gardner. Hey, Scott! Hello! (laughs) How's it going? Now, for those of you that are not familiar with Tales of the JSA, back in late 2009, uh, Scott and I not only became friends, but we started up this podcast called, well, Tales of the Justice Society of America. See, Scott and I love the JSA, and we wanted to cover their adventures, starting with the 1975 revival and moving forward Because at the time, neither of us had any real inclination to go back to the Silver Age and cover those stories, because some of those can be kind of a slog. Now, Mm. while talking about those stories was awesome, there were two things from the very beginning that Scott and I were looking forward to more than anything else. Thing one, get to All-Star Squadron. We were really jazzed about getting to that series. It's almost like we started talking, let's talk about the JSA, but what we were really saying... It's let's talk about the All-Star Squadron. And thing number two (laughs) was get to Crisis on Infinite Earths. See, the Crisis had a profound effect on the JSA, so it made sense that we would cover the Crisis in detail. But you see, that's kind of a lie. See, 
While it does make sense to cover Crisis, in reality, Scott and I were using this as an excuse to do a show devoted to what is arguably the most important comic DC ever published. Amen. And, Amen. <laughs> and it's really funny because it was it was just like, hey, let's let's do the JSA. I really want to do All Star Squadron. <laughs> hey, let's do let's do the JSA. You know, we can really talk about Crisis. I mean, we have literally been talking about this for like five years. Oh yeah, five freaking years. Um, I can't I can't believe we're here. <laughs> that's the thing. I was wondering which one of us was going to say it first, but that that's exactly the thing. I got to be honest with you. I, I just got to say it, dude. I don't. I literally do not think I've ever been more excited, and dare say, even maybe a little bit nervous for any podcast that I've ever sat down to record with anybody. Because um, this is a big one. Crisis on Infinite Earths, make no mistake, is my hands down favorite comic book event story of all time. To me, this is like the this is the high watermark by which I have judged all other comic book events from, you know, whatever, Dark Knight Returns to Watchmen to whatever. And, you know, all those stories have their merits and, and you know, this and that. But this is the story that I return to again and again and again as what I could, I just consider this the pinnacle of the medium in so many ways. This is like DC Comics' finest hour. So I, I'm I'm just like you. I'm I can't believe we're here. I'm so excited that we're here. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think it's awesome. It's a little intimidating, but um, as I think the listeners are going to discover, the way that we have kind of not even really by design. I think just by the nature of our individual personalities, the way we've kind of fallen into the coverage of this, I think is really going to work very well because. You know, Mike, I think the thing that you're really renowned for and the thing that, that you're bringing as a strength to this is, you know, you're the research guy. You mm-hmm. know, you do your homework. You're, you're very uh, thorough in, in doing the research and the homework and, and bringing the facts and, and the figures and, and the history. And I'm more of the show up and give the emotional response. How do I feel about it? How did I feel about it then? How do I feel about it now? And that's what Hippie. I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> to bringing to this is that, you know, I was there. I lived through this. This had a profound effect on me as a kid. So that's what I'm really looking forward to is, is you know, reliving that and rediscovering that and, and hopefully really being able to bring that feeling of this is what it was like, guys. You know, especially for younger readers that, you know, maybe didn't live through it. Or uh, I know in a couple instances we have listeners that have never read crisis yeah. that you know have posted on our facebook group saying hey I, I'm, I'm glad you guys are covering this i've never had a chance to read it and so i'm going to read along and i'm going <laughs> to discover it with you that's, bastards yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know hopefully we can hold their hands and, and guide them through it you know it's it's funny though because one i realized that by covering crisis that inadvertently through my podcasting career like over the past, God, it's been like almost eight years now. I've really, at various points, talked about all the things I've really wanted to talk about. The only thing that I think comes close to my excitement for this coverage uh, was when Jeffrey and I talked about Death of Superman. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think we, we, we w- back when I did that, I told you, I don't know if you remember this, I go, look, you know, the way Jeffrey and I are doing this, this is the same energy I'm going to bring to Crisis. Right. Uh, Because I think both stories are equally as important to me. 
mm-hmm. uh, just just in terms of, of either being there or what they represent. It's kind of funny because you say Crisis isn't a reboot. And it is often called that, and, it, and it's kind of easy to say that because it does kind of seem like it. The reason why I would agree with you, outside of the fact that you don't really take argument all that well, but no, the, the reason that I would agree... I'm just, I'm just kidding with you, I promise. <laughs> uh, the reason why I would agree with you is that... It was not a day one restart of exactly. the DC universe. Exactly. They, to, to their detriment and to their credit, they kept basically whatever they wanted of their history. Man of Steel was a reboot. Because, exactly. Because they said from, you know, from Man of Steel number one on, this is the new history of Superman. Wonder Woman was a reboot. Because... They cut her off and said, no, this is where it starts and this is where it goes. See, I think that is the major reason why uh, Crisis gets kind of miscast as a reboot because of things that followed on its heels mm-hmm. very shortly afterwards. I think retroactively it's very easy to look at it and go, okay, Crisis rebooted the DC Universe and then there was you know, the, the, the Crisis to Crisis era after that, which, which just isn't true. Crisis consolidated the DC universe, and then shortly thereafter, they made the decisions to reboot particular characters. Now, by rebooting Superman, you effectively kind of reboot your universe, because I think you and I both subscribe to the idea that Superman is the, the root of the tree. You know what I mean? He's the trunk of the tree of the, of the, you know, I don't know if that analogy follows, but you know what I mean. What I mean, you know, you, you you affect Superman's history. You have there thus far, you know, you have affected the entire history of DC at that point. So rebooting him rebooted the universe. But Crisis itself, the you know, the event, the twelve issues as they stand, uh, is not a reboot. And to me, that's it's just it's important to point that distinction out because I, I often hear it characterized or rather mischaracterized that way. And that just bothers me because uh, a lot of it, too, is that I, I think Crisis, and I've seen this in a number of articles lately as we're now you know, celebrating the 30th anniversary this year, um, I, I often will see Crisis kind of cast as the villain of, you know, well, this led to all the, all the woes of, of present-day DC. And again, I don't agree with that either. I think what followed later were clearly reboots, but Crisis, no, not so much. It was more of a consolidation. What's what's very ironic to me as well is the the idea that Marv Wolfman, you know, the the writer creator of of Crisis, that's what he wanted. He wanted Crisis to be a reboot yeah. and was vetoed. Yet here we are, thirty years out, and everybody looks back on it and and <laughs> at, you know calls it a reboot. Yeah, he wanted he wanted everything to start over with a new number one. And mm-hmm. for, if I'm remembering correctly, Dan Jurgens wanted the same thing at a zero hour, where everything mm-hmm. starts over at a number one, and you go co- kind of from a clean slate. Mm-hmm. And editorially, and, and really, if there's a villain, and I'm using villain in quotes here, folks, so please don't thinking that I'm trying to talk smack about people. But if there is a villain, if there's a bad guy after Crisis, it's the creators and the editors that didn't stay the course yes of the of the you know the 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 waters that were charted because of crisis you know it it, it was people not liking what happened with superman and kind of you know buffering back at that uh either aggressively or passive aggressively through their own books 
It was people starting over characters. You know, Emerald Dawn was the new origin of Green Lantern. However, mm-hmm. Emerald Dawn did not negate any of the early adventures of Green Lantern. It just kind of set up a new origin and motivation for him. So all the things that happened, I mean, they kind of changed around what happened with Sinestro. So that was a significant change. But if you go to a random Green Lantern story uh, from after his first appearance in Showcase, all of those can still happen. You know, they, they didn't say, you know, they didn't change, you know, the core didn't change fundamentally and, and, and all that. So, uh, but then you had characters like Hawkman that... Because, as Mark Wade has said on, uh, in an article, which I thought was brilliant, you know, Hawkworld number one did not have ten years later on the very first page. And thus that made Hawkworld taking place in the then-contemporary DC Universe, so that screws up everything that happened with Hawkman before that. So, th- those are the people that are ultimately responsible for the mess that, cri- that, that people will now blame on Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I'm not saying it's perfect, I mean, because we're going to be looking at this through rose-tinted glasses, but we're also going to be kind of looking at the story and going, eh, I don't know, that's kind of weird. But right. But uh, but at the same time, it's, you know, as often happens uh, in the comic book fan community, and I think this goes for any fan community, I think this goes for any fandom, but be it comics or Star Trek or even sports fandom, there will always be a villain that people want to cast in that role so that they can use that as the whipping boy as you know as the as the as the one that they can hurl all of their vitriol at right and crisis just isn't that now i'm sure there were people that were there at the time that were really pissed that crisis happened and given what's recently happened in dc in the last 10 years i can't say as i blames them all that much even though i'm so tightly devoted to it but at the same time there was an idea behind it. Whether you agree with that idea or not is kind of irrelevant. They had a plan, and while I, I've heard you on other podcasts talking about the fact that DC kind of wrote a contract with us as right. fans, uh, I don't subscribe to that completely, but I completely agree with the underlying feeling of that, that we were we were told something, like, we're going to take all this away, and we're going to give you this... And then later on, other people who didn't feel like playing ball were the ones that kind of reneged on that. Yes, yeah. See, you, you've touched on that a couple of times, and, and that's definitely one of the things that that was on you know my, my list of things to talk about uh, regarding this was basically, I, I like to characterize Crisis this way. Crisis was a promise. Now, again, there's that, that great divide between facts and feeling you know mm-hmm. so the fact of the matter is was it really was there a contract that was signed and all as you say not really but there was you know to to me as a kid growing up reading this and being really into crisis and really buying into it there was this feeling that a promise was being made that hands were being shaken that dc was saying we're doing this for the greater good we're doing this to be honest what it was there was one magic word that was bandied about a lot and that word had become to me personally very very important which was continuity Mm -hmm. this was 
this was the greatest example I can think of in comics where continuity was king, where continuity had become so important to not only the fans and the fanboys that were keeping, you know, the scorecards, but also to the company. Suddenly they realized, wow, continuity is a thing that we can't just willy nilly just write crazy shit that doesn't match up anymore. We can't have, you know, Superman, you know, his parents sent him to, you know, to earth from Krypton and they perished in the explosion. Yet we have this one-off Superboy story where he actually found them and they were out in space and Hey, they escaped the destruction. And it's like, how does this fit? It doesn't. So continuity had become this thing and it was very important. So this was DC acknowledging, Hey, we know continuity is important to you. We're going to fix it. We're going to pull it all together. And I completely agree with what you were saying before. It was later people, later creators that didn't want to play ball that that's what kind of brought us to where we are today, in in my opinion. So that's where the beginnings of, of my feeling is of kind of disenfranchisement with present day DC kind of originated from, because in my opinion... It comes down to DC made a promise with Crisis that, you know, we're going to pull this all together. It's going to make sense. There's going to be one tight continuity. And for a time, it really did seem to work. I mean, I really think that those first few years post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, DC was just, they were on fire, man. I mean, things were... were uh, very cohesive and it was going in a really good direction and they were delivering some just damn fine material, a, a really mm-hmm. good universe of books. Um, and I, I'm just of the opinion that uh, I, I wish that there had been more of a tight rein editorially. I mean, there was, but it didn't last. It didn't last forever, which is kind of the shame of it. And uh, I still am of, of the opinion that, you know, when it comes to things like this, that if there were those creators that didn't want to play ball, if they didn't want to stick to this this promise and this tight continuity, well, you know, to, to quote Anakin Skywalker, they should have been made to, you know? Because again, <laughs> it's just, this was a this was a, a a handshake with the fans. Is that that's how I had come to look at it after all I just, these years. I just I just have this this image now of recasting that entire conversation from episode two where they're they're talking about like politics in the senate it's just like it's like well you know creators want to tell their own stories and it's just like well they need to be made to <laughs> that's going to be a meme you watch because it's going to show up on our facebook page as a meme now because here's the thing because because on just to play devil's advocate for a minute and for the sake of, of because somebody out there is going to say it anyway, so we might as well, <laughs> and and have it happen in the episode, is right. that there is something to be said for a creator wanting to do their own thing. I mean, that's what they do. They're creative people, right? And they have ideas. But the and the thing is, is that what we forget is that by 1985. You know, even though Dick Giordano and and Jeanette Kahn were kind of like the lead, and Paul Levitz were all like the lead people at DC, at this point, the inmates were running the asylum. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they were all, at one point or another, comic book fans in their youth. And then you have people like Marv Wolfman and George Perez and Len Wein, who, like, grew up during the Marvel age of comics and started writing at the end of the 60s. I mean, they're second-generation fans. So 
you have you you have these people that all have their own opinions and you know it, i think what we th- the mistake some of us make is that we assume that when somebody becomes an editor for example that they're going to doff all of their you know fanish ways and want to do what's right for the character and the company, and what we forget is most of the time they're coming in with their own ideas about how this should be done based right. on their fandom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at first you're right. I mean, right after Crisis DC, I mean, there was a little, there was a little like 1986 was kind of a fluxing year. Uh, yeah, I would call it a rebuilding year almost. But by the start of 1987, you know, Legends had just finished up, and you had a new Justice League, and you had a, you had Suicide Squad, Superman was rebooted. Batman had been kind of revitalized or revised. I wouldn't say he was rebooted. He was more revised. Wonder Woman was happening. The Flash was out there. You had a Green Lantern core. Legion was, you know, had some problems, but it was trucking along. And you had up until about 1990, 91, I would say, you know, like this really, you know, kind of firm vision for the company. There's a feeling when you read those books Especially mm-hmm. if you read them all together, there is an atmosphere to them that kind of breaks apart until Zero Hour. And after Zero Hour, you had about four or five years, you know, going to the to, into 2000 of a, of a DC universe that was unified. That was, you know, you had your own fiefdoms. You know, you had the Superman castle and the Batman castle and the Green Lantern castle and the Flash castle. And I'm doing all this stuff with my hands that people can't see. <laughs> and I have no idea why. It's just how I podcast. But everybody, but but while they were all telling their own stories and, and doing their own things, there was a central hole to it yes. that, after Infinite Crisis, disappeared from DC Comics completely because everybody had their own idea about what they wanted to do and you had certain creative people that had the clout. Or maybe this is how they want... You see, we're not in the meetings. We don't know what happened. We weren't there during the planning sessions. But looking from the outside in, you're kind of seeing things break down, and it really, despite that there are DC titles right now that I enjoy, I feel no sense of wholeness out of the DC universe. Yes. I feel no sense of, and this isn't me going, oh, you do 52 sucks, because it's not that kind of party. We're, we're here to celebrate right. DC Comics, not bury it. Right. And, but, you know, you mentioned it, so I figured I'd throw in my two cents as well, that it's just it's just not the same. You know, when when they started the new 52, it was not the same as the post-crisis world. Uh mainly because a lot of the DC titles that were going at the time didn't really get a good send-off. But more than anything else, it's just things got money, but you can't blame that. I'm bringing it all back. You can't blame that on crisis. I mean, thank you. you, you thank you. you yes. Can, you can it seems like an easy thing to do, but, you know, if if I re-venerate, <laughs> renovate my house, because I can speak English, I promise. If I renovate a house, like I go into a house, not mine, because my wife would be pissed if I did this. Uh, if I renovate a house and I build it up, right? And I, I make everything, you know, like redo the floors and redo the walls and everything gets a fresh coat of paint. The siding's redone and it's this beautiful house afterwards and it's just completely redone. And somebody moves in and turns it into a frat house. 
it's not my fault that they wrecked the house. You know? Right. They're the ones that did it. And that's the easy, that that's the comparison I can make with DC Comics. Through the course of these uh, 12 issues and all the crossovers we're going to be talking about, Marv Wolfman and crew, while they sometimes seem to be kind of doing things on the fly, they did have an end goal in mind. And it's not their fault that people didn't play ball afterwards. Absolutely. I'll get Absolutely. off my soapbox now. So. No, no, no. Preach it, brother, because I, you know, these are the things that, uh, that, you know, if you didn't say it, I was planning to. So, no, I'm glad that we are of one mind on this. Uh, it occurs to me that uh, this is probably a good spot to throw this in. Uh, I want to make folks aware of how this show is going to work. So, in monthly installments, monthly installments, over the course of 2015, which is, of course, the 30th anniversary of uh, this 12-issue Maxi Saga, Mike and I will be synopsizing, examining, discussing, reviewing, nitpicking, whatever you want to call it, Crisis on Infinite Earths in a way that, uh, personally, I don't believe has ever even been attempted in podcasting before. So, that you know, that's very important to us. While... There have been shows that have talked about Crisis, obviously. You know, with as many podcasts that are out there, people have talked about it. People have done, you know, whether little miniseries or, or what, you know, one-off shows or whatever. And again, with this being the 30th anniversary, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of shows this year that are going to be touching on Crisis. But what we're looking to do is basically put the stamp on it. Like, this is going to be what we're hoping is, like, the definitive coverage of Crisis. So we're going to do this in, in monthly installments. I imagine the episodes will rather be rather long, which, uh, you know, <laughs> hopefully that's that's good with everybody. And we're going to be incorporating it. The reason it's on the Tales of the JSA feed is because it is an offshoot of Tales. Um, and there's a number of reasons why, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so in any given month, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a regular episode of Tales of the JSA, where we will continue to cover um, All-Star Squadron and Infinity Incorporated. Uh, you will get a Crisis on Infinite Earths episode proper, where we will cover you know the next issue of that series. And then we're going to have another episode, uh, an individual episode, in which we will be covering the crossovers. Because they're, you know when we get to it, there's going to be rather a lot of them. So rather than bog down either a Crisis proper episode or a JSA proper episode with all these crossovers that, you know, while they are related to Crisis and some of them may even be related to JSA, they, they're they they're ancillary. So we want to cover those with their own specific episode just to be thorough, just to paint the, the bigger picture of Crisis. And some of those will be covered in more depth than others. Oh, yes. Uh, because there, there are some, and, and this is where Scott and I get to kind of have final say in the matter. Um, mm-hmm. Mentioning them is the thorough part of it. How deeply we want to go into them depends on how we feel about the story. Because there's right. going to be some of these crossovers where it's like, hey, this kind of happens and that ties into this issue of Crisis. And that's pretty much it. Where other times, like, you know... For example, I, I, I think the first appearance of Superboy Prime in DC Comics Presents is probably going to produce more conversation than the Omega Man issue. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, you know, plus the nature of the things, which is, you know, this is going to be the fun of it. You know, the, the very nature of Crisis crossovers in itself is a lot of fun because you have stories that are 
important to the overall narrative of Crisis or something spun out of them which was important later, like, as Mike said, uh, Superboy Prime's introduction in DC Comics Presents. Then you have others that may actually even have the banner on them of a Crisis crossover, but the full... Uh, crossover is nothing more than hey there's red skies in the background while Batman's out doing his thing in this issue <laughs> so it's like the yeah. ongoing joke now too yeah but but it is literally true there are issues that are bannered with the crisis crossover that that's the extent of the crossover is that the skies are red so you know but as Mike says we will cover them all but to varying degrees. I mean, if, if the crisis literally is that, just red skies, then that's going to be my synopsis. Batman battles this person while the skies behind him are red. And, that, and we'll move on because we're, we're trying to paint the, the crisis picture, not do an in-depth summary and an examination of every individual storyline going on in every individual title that you know, the crisis happened to touch on. Just we want to really you know, cover it where it's relevant and breeze over it where it's really not to give you that feeling of what, what are the important beats? What are the things that are, you know, that are worth the discussion kind of thing. So you mentioned before, uh, the differences, uh, the two of us are going to bring to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the, that is illustrated, uh, no more better in how we came to this series because it was two <laughs> very different ways. You were you were there, man. I was there. Before we get into that, because I, I know where you're headed here with the, with kind of our personal history on this, I, I kind of want to break it down for me personally this way. You know, because a lot of people ask me, "What? What's your? Why do you care so much about this? Why is this such a big deal?" And it was I, I tried. Believe me, I sat down trying to to put my thoughts you know, in some sort of, of neat orderly fashion for this whole thing of why is this such a big deal for me? And actually ended up stumbling across something that I think summed it up a lot better in a lot of the ways of why I think it's such a big deal for, you know, first and foremost, the, the part of it that's easy for me is why is this such a big deal to me? It's the ultimate end of the world story. The world ends and I love apocalyptic stories, especially when they're very well told. And that's a lot of it with this one is that this is the ultimate end of the world story, because not only does the world end, the multiverse ends, you know, so it's kind of a big deal. And it's the kind of thing where they can see it coming and you've got, you know, the, the DC heroes in mass battling the end of the world, but ultimately they can't stop it. And that, to me, is exciting when you've got guys like Superman that fear the, you know, they can see it coming and they're trying their level best, but ultimately they can't stop it. That, I mean, come on, that is that not dramatic? You know, that's pretty cool. But uh, here's what I wanted to read to you, uh, something that I found. This is a site that I've been coming to, you know, coming back to for years now, time and time again, whenever I just kind of want to. Uh, examine a particular corner of crisis or I'm trying to refresh my memory about something or I'm just kind of researching things. There's a great site out there that uh, is several years old now. I don't think that it has been, um, it's been refreshed in quite a number of years. Uh, So I kind of wish he would go back and and finish some of the projects that, uh, that didn't get finished and, and revise. There are mistakes and things like that, but overall it's a really, really good site 
called The Annotated Crisis mm-hmm. on Infinite Earths by uh, Jonathan Woodward. You, you know the site I'm talking no, about? I have it bookmarked. I've had it bookmarked and, for 10 years now, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a great site. And, I mean, Jonathan really did his homework on this site. And uh, it's, it's a really good resource. Very well researched. And one of the things I like is right in the beginning of it, kind of for the newbies in a, in a lot of ways, he kind of gives a brief rundown, like, what is the crisis? And this is what I gleaned off of there that I liked that I, I'm pulling this out because this summarizes perfectly why this is so important to me. Because, again, being there, living through it, everything he says here touches a chord with me like, preach it, brother, preach it. So this is what Jonathan writes here. He says, uh, why was the crisis important and why was it different? He says, crisis was first. It's hard to believe nowadays, but there was a time comics companies didn't have all uh, all company crossovers every year. There was a time when they didn't have them at all. Sure, the JSA and the uh, JLA got together every year and they usually invited the Freedom Fighters or the Legion, uh, but that's as big as it got. Crisis was the first series to have a huge cast with tie-ins to dozens of titles and long-lasting repercussions. Crisis had scope. Not only did Crisis involve more characters than most crossovers, I count 200 in one two-page spread alone, and they're just from Earth 1 and Earth 2. Not only did it span uh, from the dawn of time to the 30th century, but it included Old West characters, war characters, sci-fi characters, historical characters, anthropological characters, and a half dozen dozen other genres that are absent from modern comics. Further, it was 12 issues long. The modern mega crossover clocks in at four or six if you're lucky. People died. I'm far from a unilateral supporter of character uh, death as a way to boost the perceived importance of a series, but the immense swath the Grim Reaper cut through DC's ranks gives Crisis relevance no matter how you look at it. Nearly two score named and uncountable unnamed characters were lost forever. Crisis changed things. To this day, a serious discussion of DC Comics is going to be peppered with pre-crisis and post-crisis. You can't get away from it, you can't ignore it, and you can't pretend it didn't happen. It will matter forever. And this is one that really touches a chord with me, the last one. The Heroes Lost. Sure, the Anti-Monitor was defeated, but the collapse of the Infinite Earths into one cannot be regarded as anything but a failure. Dozens of heroes were grief-stricken when, uh, grief-stricken rather, when their realities, their loved ones, were lost in the merger. An infinite number of people died. The current DC Universe is built on a foundation of corpses. I know that's very spoilerific, but he nails it. I mean, these are the reasons why... It was important to me when it was happening, and it's important to me now. Um, for me personally, I was 16 going on 17 when Crisis on Infinite Earths <laughs> came out. You're going to start singing out. now, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I forgot that was the line. <laughs> but no, I mean, literally, I, I, I was. You know, in, in, 1980, uh, in 1985, you know, I, I was 16. I turned 17 that April. I bought this off the racks. You know, this was at a time... Uh, I don't believe, at least to my memory, I don't believe there was a comic shop in my town at that time. So I literally remember buying this off the racks at a Walden Books uh, in the basement of a of a Woolworths department store, you know, in, in Watertown, New York. And I devoured it. I 
learned about it as it was, you know, I learned about it pretty much, I imagine, the way most people did back then was uh, by the dribs and drabs of what we saw happening in DC at the time, the the pre-crisis monitor appearances, and then the the ads that started to come out, you know, the very cryptic ads, this man's been watching the DC universe now for a year, you know, what's going on, you know, those types of things. And then the house ads that started to appear saying, you know, history of the DC universe crisis on infinite earths, you know, coming soon and who's who was, was becoming a thing and all these things leading up to hinting something big's about to happen. Something's coming. And so I knew that it was important and I knew that it was going to be special. Even at the time it was happening, I knew, wow, this is, this is important. We've been building to, there was this sense of this is what we've been building to. And I had been following uh, the crises that had happened up to this point. You know, you had a uh, crisis on, help me out, Mike, what was the name of that story in DC Comics Presents? Crisis on Earth Three was that the name of that? I can't remember, but it was the one with the, with the Earth One and Earth Two Supermans meeting up to stop the Luthors from destroying, uh, you know the. You know we covered that and story, and I don't remember the title. So yeah, I, I can't remember it either. But you know there, there was every time the the JSA and the JLA got together, it was a new crisis. You know, and we had the Crisis on Earth Prime story that we covered on Tales of the JSA not long ago, where you had the heroes of both Earth-1, Earth-2, and the All-Star Squadron. So you had the 1940s superheroes of Earth-2 all teaming up to stop, you know, Perdegaton and the Earth-3 characters. And it was this big multiverse-spanning story that even incorporated Earth-Prime into it. So you had these different stories, and it seemed like each time there was a story, it just got bigger in scope and bigger in scope and bigger in scope So ultimately you got to infinite earths in this infinite scope so it, it felt very logical in the progression of going from threats from you know earth one and earth two to more earths to finally all the earths were in danger and so there was just that that progression for me and you know as i said before that idea of it's all coming to a head and there, there was a reason why that this was going to happen i remember one of the the first things that got me really excited about crisis was going into a comic shop the first comic shop i ever saw as a matter of fact um it was uh, at a mall in in syracuse new york and going in and just being blown away wow an actual shop full of comics you know it was the first one i'd ever seen and they had all this artwork on their walls and one of the pieces of artwork that they had was the promotional poster for crisis which of course you know is just the cover of of number one the wraparound cover of number one but as a promo poster and to this day that is something that i covet i really want that promotional poster you know i have the one for number seven you know the promotional poster that was the the create you know the uh, blow up of the crisis on infant earth number seven cover and i have the recreation poster that came with the um, with that hardcover reprint from when was that 97 98 they that came with a poster that was the crisis number one you know, again the wraparound cover but it's not 
a duplicate of the promo one. It's more of just a, you know, it's just that clean image. Well, it's, it's also recolored a little bit. There's a yeah. little detail. I'm looking at it right now because I have it up. Yeah, me too, right over my desk. There's a, there's a detail on Dr. Fate in the bottom right-hand corner where the, the little symbol on his chest is, like, glinting in the light uh, and all that. And it's just completely recolored. Uh, mm-hmm. With a more vibrant, uh, because of the the paper stock and everything, it just looks a little right. more vibrant than the actual cover. So, yeah, I put it up big, uh, as kind of like inspiration. <laughs> I was like, "We're going to be covering this soon. I'm going to get excited." And yes, I am. Well, I uh, finally uh, got the the green light from the misses, and I ordered. There's a T-shirt that's out. That uh, there's actually two two variations of it. There's one where it's just the images on the front of the T-shirt, and then there's one where it wraps around front and back, and it's that cover as yeah. a wraparound T-shirt. And uh, I finally got the okay. I went ahead and I ordered it. Unfortunately, it hasn't arrived yet. I was really hoping to be wearing it, <laughs> <laughs> recording this episode, and it hasn't come yet. But uh, but yeah, that's you know that's a little bit of my history on this. I, I want to save some of the other comments for you know as we go further along into this. I've kind of peppered my my notes uh, for this issue, and, and I'm sure for future issues, I'm going to pepper it with where was I in my DC fandom at this time, specifically as as different characters are brought into the Crisis story. I've really been racking my mind to try to remember. Where was I with this character? Was this my introduction to them? Did I know them? If I knew them, how did I know them? That sort of thing. So I'll be doing a little bit of that later as we go over our notes for the issue. But um, I, I hope that kind of gives you an idea where I was. As far as like my my DC fandom, um, I would still say, I, I mean, I was in the early stages. I, I had been a regular DC reader for a couple years by this point. I'd started seriously buying and collecting comics about eh, about 1980 or so. So, I mean, I, I felt like I was up to speed and I knew what was going on and I was familiar with the characters, but I was familiar with the more of the mainstream stuff, you know? So I was up on Superman and Batman and Teen Titans and things like that. Um, you know, when you get into the fringes and you get into the, the Westerns and the, the war comics and everything, not quite so much. So that was another thing that Crisis did for me was introducing me to those those far reaches of its universe that I wasn't quite as familiar with. So in a lot of ways, this did serve as my introduction to a number of characters that were featured in the series because, again, that was the thing that the series had was this scope. I mean, you went everywhere in this series. You know, we went to the, to the ends of the universe, to the beginning of the universe, and everywhere in between. And we met this this a massive array of, of you know this massive cast of characters, and so for a lot of these people, this was the first time I was introduced to them. Some of which I was really intrigued, like "Ooh, I got to learn more." And then there was other ones like, oh, "Okay, I don't ever need to see that person again." So, <laughs> but that was the fun thing of it was discovering that the DC universe was so much more than just the corners I had already visited with Superman and Batman and such. There was there was this huge history there well my (laughs) i'm almost not the complete opposite because the complete opposite is somebody who is like 18 today uh reading it for the first time. right i um i was a late bloomer when it came when it came to reading in general but uh it's not that it took me a long time to learn how to read it's just took me a long time to learn that i actually liked reading 
Uh, and as far as reading comics, I, I didn't start until 1987. I mean, I love superheroes my entire life. Uh, I, I can't think of a single time in my life, uh, going back to when I was a, a wee lad, that uh, that I don't remember superheroes not you know not being a part of it. One of my earliest earliest memories is sitting in uh, the the townhouse my family lived in when I was I had to be like two or three maybe maybe a little younger than that. Uh, and there was something about the Incredible Hulk on the television, so that'll kind of give you a gauge of of how important superheroes are to me. But as far as comics, it never took. I mean, I tried a few different times. But nothing ever kind of grabbed me in that way that makes you, you know, sit down and do it on a regular basis until I stumbled upon John Byrne's Superman uh, in June, May, June of 1987, somewhere around there. So by that point, Crisis had been done and dusted for a year and a half. So, and, and it's kind of funny because in my first real introduction to DC Comics as an ongoing thing, there's a mention of this crisis. And as that summer wore on, DC was releasing Who's Who Update 87, and there were numerous mentions throughout the course of that thing of Crisis on Infinite Earths. So I always knew it was there, I just had no idea what it was, I had no access to a comic shop, I just was never going to read about it. Uh, until about a year or so later, when one of the guys that lived in my neighborhood, who uh, we went to the bus stop together... He was into comics. He was the first guy I ever really traded comics with. And in one of those things, he's like, okay, I'll trade you this. And he puts in my hand a copy of Crisis on Infinite Earths number 5. That was the first issue of Crisis I read. I want that to sink in a little bit. <laughs> to those who are familiar with Crisis on Infinite Earths number 5, holy crap, what a place to jump into it. I mean, that's not jumping into the deep end. That's going out to the middle of the ocean with no flugels and just starting to swim around with the sharks. I mean, it, but here's the thing. And this is where when people say, oh, it was all confusing and oh, how could you keep track of it? And it's going to turn off new readers. Did the exact opposite to me. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the concept that at one point there were multiple Earths. There's two Superman sitting there. And look at that older one. And God, look at that S symbol. That is so awesome. So over the course of the next couple of years, I read Crisis just not in order. I, I found issue one. And then I found issue three. And at that point when I, when I bought a comic, it got read seconds later. And it was either 89 or it was probably 89. Uh, I remember sitting down for the first time and reading, because uh, I had just gotten them from the comic shop, Crisis 7 and 8. And and, and just, you know, because 7's a great... If you're ever going to get an introductory issue of Crisis, and you want to jump in and not read the first issue, 7's great, because it explains everything. It's like the origin of the multiverse. And before that, though, and this is the funny thing, this, this, this is how... You ever make a rookie comic book mistake uh, where you're just starting out and you buy something because you think it's something, but it turns out to be something else? Oh, yes. <laughs> I was like, hey, this is Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. It's $4. I've got $4. Let me buy it. And I take it home, and I crack it open, and it is the Crisis Index number one. <laughs> so, which I read cover to cover. <laughs> so, <laughs> I had a, a sense of what Crisis was, you know, historically. 
And I'd been reading it piecemeal. But I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't think I have ever sat down and read 1 to 12 all together. Like, oh, wow. Like, I know all the stories. I, you know, because I, I read, like, you know, I got, like, 1 to 4 rather, you know, close to each other. So I read all of those, and I'd read 5, and I, then I read 6, and then 7 and 8, and then I found 11, and then I found 12, and then I found 9 and 10. So I know the whole story. But I, but this is actually going to be the first time, I think, I could be wrong, I could have done it at some point and forgotten about it. My memory is usually pretty good about these things. But I think this is the first time I'm going to be sitting down and reading the whole thing as a, a, a as a narrative, basically, and not piecemeal. And it's important because I can't sit here and say, well, Crisis, you know, that's how I came into it. Uh, or even really... While I think it's the best, I don't know if it's my favorite of DC's crossovers because I think one of the f- when, when the first one you experience usually ends up being your favorite because it's right. the first one you jumped into, and a lot of people are going to groan at this, but for me that was Invasion. Invasion was the first because uh, Millennium just passed me by. Thank God, uh, um, I could make a comparison, but we're trying to keep this a little more family friendly than usual. <laughs> um, but you know, Invasion was the first time in my collecting life that I saw all the heroes come together to fight a common threat and that common threat was an alien invasion and that's why I will always defend invasion because it's the idea that you have your alien invasion movie but now they're superheroes and that conceptually is awesome but crisis you know I got your back Mike I I was actually a big fan of invasion as well (laughs) so but crisis is king crisis is the the gold standard of what DC crossovers are. Whether people doing the crossovers realize it or not, they're they're all and, and even Marvel, I would say. Because Marvel beat DC to the punch in getting a a, 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 a crossover going on, right? They had Secret Wars in nineteen eighty four. And when we get into the history of Crisis, you'll see kind of why, because Crisis had kind of a long gestation period. But they 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 put that to market, and I will put Crisis up against Secret Wars, story-wise, character-wise, every, art-wise, everything, as heads and tails above Secret Wars. Because Secret Wars, outside of being a toy tie-in, was just all the characters getting together and fighting. Well, see, that's the thing for me is that I, I like, you know, like I introduced the episode with, you know, how I think Crisis has been mischaracterized as a reboot. I think Secret Wars is mischaracterized as a crossover because when you really look at it, it doesn't cross over. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there's, it's, there, it there's spans issues that lead there. into it. This is true. But it's just a handful of the most popular characters and most iconic exactly. characters of Marvel getting thrown on this world to fight with with the villains. There was no other right real impetus behind it but that. And I think that really typifies Marvel in general that well, you know the thing is with that is that I you know I don't I don't disagree with you and I'm not trying to nitpick but I just it's important to me to point out that distinction but to get your back um I agree with you that Crisis does whether and this is the thing I would love to know is this is this intentional or is it just dumb luck happenstance? 
I think Crisis does owe something to a Marvel event, which is not so much uh, Secret Wars as Marvel Superheroes Contest of Champions. Mm-hmm. Having recently reread that, man, is there some serious parallels between <laughs> those two books. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Uh, I've, I, I've, I'm familiar with Contest of Champions. I've never actually read it, but I'm familiar with it enough to, to kind of agree with you. But really, I think that the most important distinction between the two is that Crisis led somewhere. It it it, right. it it had an idea behind it. It had a, a it had a thesis essentially, and I think that's why it will always be king. I think that's why it will always be better than Secret Wars. Certainly, Secret Wars two, uh, which was coming <laughs> out around the same time, actually same year as uh, as Crisis. Actually, uh, was it? I don't remember it being the same it, year. It was nineteen eighty five. So wow. yeah. So but but seriously, I mean you know because there there are. There are certain Marvel fans out there that kind of, you know, get up their own ass, so to speak, about, you know, like, you know, Marvel was first, Marvel is best, Marvel had the first intercompany crossover, and it's just like, yeah, but it sucked. So, I mean, I've read Secret Wars. I read Secret Wars as an adult. That thing doesn't hold together at all. No, no, it doesn't. And Mike Zek's artwork gets worse as the 12 issues go on, and... You know, it's just like, wow, you were tying into a toy line and you were bringing Spider-Man a new costume. Bravo. Yep. Yay. Yay. Oh, oh, you're going to kill the Wasp? Oh, boo-hoo. Because she's back like 30 seconds later. So it's just like, uh, I know I'm being snarky here, but it kind of pisses me off when people... Well, no, I mean, Secret Wars, I think works man i i really hope this doesn't come across insulting to anybody because it's not this isn't how i mean it but see if you follow me secret wars works on a child playing in their toy box mentality yeah you know, I, I, I that, can see that. that all your superheroes get together and, and fight the bad guys you know which is which is how many of us that played with action figures as kids that's how we played you threw all your guys together and you had big battles that's i think the appeal of secret wars for those of us that were kids when it came out as you look back on it very finally like oh that was a lot of fun but if you have that opinion and you think we're slogging it then you haven't read it recently because having reread it not long ago yeah it doesn't hold up it's really not a story much at all it's kind of just a bunch of heroes thrown together and they fight for 12 issues which is not what crisis on infinite earths is crisis on infinite earths again I very much maintain that this is where DC was building to at this point. This was kind of the culmination of their universe, and this was the point at which they were going to retool and go kind of in the same direction from from here on out. So it had a very different scope, even though on the surface it may appear to some people to be kind of the same thing, or even, you know, dare I say, a rehash of Marvel's Secret Wars idea. It's really not. They're really two very different things. I, I think it's funny, though, that Marv Wolfman takes a really clear shot at Marvel in his introduction in Crisis number one. <laughs> it's like, why are we doing this? Well, certainly not to sell toys. Not to sell toys. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And I didn't get I that, that at first. And it's only later, it's like, wow, that's kind of like, you know, these hip-hop songs where people are trashing fellow artists and throwing out insults. This is kind of like the comic book version of that, so. 
You know what's funny though, as you think about it, why the hell didn't they try to sell some toys at the time? Because wow, you know, you know, you know that, they probably could have. They probably could have sold the crap out of some toys. It's it's funny because I was thinking, you know, we, we've had merchandise for Crisis over the years. Uh, oh yeah, DC Direct put out several waves of figures that seem to be kind of cheap now. So hopefully, as the year goes goes on, I'll like complete my Crisis collection because there's some really nice <laughs> figures in there. You got an Earth Two Robin figure. Uh, you've got a headband right. Supergirl figure. You've got a proper Earth 2 Superman figure uh, and all that. A good Batman, Superboy. But I was thinking of, like, what what else would I have wanted? And I realized the one thing they haven't done, which I hope to God they do at some point this year, I want a Crisis on Infinite Earths trading card set. Oh, dude. I would buy a box of those things. And, and like, just to put, like, two sets together. Because I just think... I think especially now with trading cards looking so slick that you could mm-hmm. like you could do a really cuz cuz in the 90s everything had a trading card set. I mean, you know, Nightfall didn't surprisingly. They had Pogs. Can you believe that? <laughs> Anybody remember Pogs? They were hit oh, for yeah. like 30 seconds. I got a box of them somewhere. Um, yeah, so do I. Uh, but, you know, everything had a trading card set. You know, like uh, Death of Superman had a trading card set. And Return of Superman and DC vs. Marvel and Kingdom Come and all that. I want a Crisis on Infinite Earths Skybox 90 count card set with hologram cards and like a rare chase card and all that kind of stuff. That's actually a really good question that uh, as you were starting to go into that, I was thinking, man, you know, what, what would I want? You know, it's the 30th anniversary. I'm sure that they'll do something. What would I want? And honestly, I think what I would want you know, they, they, as I said before, they, you know, they, they had the poster that came with the uh, late 90s hardcover of, the, of number one. You know, mm-hmm. they covered a number one as a poster. And then one of my editions, it might be that, maybe you can help me out. There was, uh, a number seven was a poster as well. Did it come with that same set? Because I can't remember. Uh, but I know that there was a poster of number seven as well. Yes. Did it come with that? Same I think we're one? talking about two different posters. Uh, are, are you talking about the Alex Ross poster? No, or? no. There's a there was that one too. That one I don't have only because I have to admit I don't like that one. Okay, but I know the one you're talking about. No, I'm talking about this. This was the Crisis Number One poster. You know, the the, the cover to Number One, that wraparound cover, but done as a poster. And it came if you bought. Maybe it was if you pre-ordered. I forget. But if you bought the hardcover... It wasn't the in the hardcover. Because from... I, I bought the hardcover. No, it, wa- it wasn't in it. But it, it was like if you bought it, then oh, they okay. handed it to you as a, as a rolled poster. Yeah. So maybe you had to pre-order it. I don't know. But I know I, I got that when I bought that. Um, And then inside, I think, Is... was the Crisis 7 poster folded up. Yeah, I think, that's right? the one that I have on my wall right now. Okay, so. yeah. So there was those two. So I think what I would want... I'd like to see the rest of the covers as posters because I love all the covers to that. I mean, they're all Perez and they're all gorgeous. And some of them have, you know, just tons and tons of characters on them, but they're all unique and they're all really great covers. I I think I'd like to have uh, posters for the rest of the the covers of the series. Um, And uh, I'd love to see them, uh, you know, kind of get as much of the old gang back together as possible as far as the the creators that were at DC 
both leading up to crisis, during crisis, and then immediately post-crisis, and do like a like a DVD, you know, put out a DVD, you know, the Crisis on Infinite Earth DVD where they talk to these people mm-hmm. and do and like have an interview. interviews. Yeah, I would, that would be awesome. I would love something like that, and and just do a really in-depth thirtieth anniversary examination of crisis you know how are you involved how did it affect you how do you feel about it now 30 years later you know blah 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 that would be fun i think that'd be a lot of fun to see what different creators had to say because i'm sure there's some of them that would tell great stories and they'd have really positive things to say and then you'd get some other ones that maybe they would slag it off a little bit so i think that could be a lot of fun if they were candid and honest to see what different people think I, i think that would be really uh That'd be cool. You, you kind of want one of the creators to end up being like Hunter S. Thompson, like sitting there firing shotguns in the background and ranting about everything's different now. <laughs> I don't know who that would be because I've met. Want to see a fist fight break out? Yeah, I've, I've met George Perez. I've interviewed Marv Wolfman. I've interviewed Jerry Ordway for 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 different things. So you know they're all nice people. So mm-hmm. It's not it's not like you're going to get any vitriol out of like the main crew. Uh, unfortunately, Dick Giordano is no longer with us. Yeah. Uh, so can't really interview him. But no, it, it would be nice. And and here's the other thing. I, I was thinking, uh, I've, I've wanted this since I was a little kid. And now I want it just out of kind of a cheese nostalgia factor. Uh, I'd really like a, a crappy, like, 80s metal theme song for Crisis. Like if they were going <laughs> to do, like if they did a Crisis animated movie in 1986... This would have been the theme song that everybody now begrudgingly likes, but is kind of right. awful at the same time. Uh, I don't know if I'd want an, an <laughs> yeah. animated version of this, because you'd have to do it at least in two parts. And what do you take out? What do you leave in? I mean, there's it, like there's portions of this that you could probably easily do that. But I think that the scope of Crisis is, you know, they did Dark Knight Returns as two animated films that they then slap mm-hmm. together as one animated film. And you can kind of do that because that's a four-part series. So you have four acts, essentially, in that story. So it's easy to act one and two in the first film, act three and four in the second. You can't do that with Crisis. It almost has to be it's like its own miniseries. I think The only time I think that they ever could have done Crisis, and I, I won't necessarily call it a missed opportunity because, again, it, it wouldn't have been the same. You would have to leave things out. You would have to make changes. But the one time I think that it could have worked was, you know, you had this great universe that was created when batman the animated series started you Uh you had batman the animated series and that built over the years that that was out and it it introduced so many characters beyond just batman's world and then eventually you got superman and then you know we got the justice league and then we had justice league unlimited so by the time you got to the end of justice league unlimited you had the dc universe you know you had all these characters. And as we see in the final episode of that, they, they kind of do uh, the scene at the end that just lets you know, you know, I hope you appreciate this fanboys. Cause look at the breadth and scope this thing had. And they show you just tons and tons of characters that I think we take for granted today that at the time, I can remember watching that episode first time and thinking, I never thought I would live to see this. I yeah. never thought I would live to see that character animated. And there he is. And so I think that if it was ever going to happen, 
that was probably the the one time that it could have happened. And as I say, they they would have had to play with it a little bit, but it could have just because it did. You know that show really embraced that DC fanboy heart of of just touching on so many obscure DC characters that only we appreciate, that only we even know exist. That's the beauty of Crisis. So I think if you were to release a, you know, like a direct-to-DVD movie, even if you split it up into two parts or four parts or six parts, to me, the only way to do that is to do it the way Crisis is presented, to, you know, to to not cut corners and to embrace that deep continuity geekiness. Yeah. Because otherwise you're just not doing it service. You know, if, if you do it death of superman style then it just comes off as all right well thanks for playing but no you know (laughs) and that's what i would fear because you know i I know that this has been bandied about every so often i still see those little news stories that pop up on facebook or yahoo or something that say yeah dc banding about the idea of a of a crisis movie and i'm like please dear god no please 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 no because i i you know i i don't want to see that I you know there there's there's a couple of things in regard you know it seems like a strange thing to say maybe regarding my favorite story but I never wanted to see adaptations of this. I never want to see sequels to this. In my mind there are no sequels to Crisis. Crisis happened and that was it and it, and it never needed to be revisited. You know with exceptions. I mean there were certain things that seemed like logical extensions of Crisis like legends and um um Zero Hour were kind of logical extensions of Crisis, but out-and-out sequels or attempts to to fiddle with or undo never needed that and don't exist in my personal continuity, you know? Because I, I like the story as it stands. And uh, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it, you know? Alrighty, I think this is a good time to take a quick break. Uh, maybe play some promos, <laughs> and when because you know we 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 we've we've rushed through this, so I, I think uh, I think we need. No, I'm just kidding, uh, but we'll take a quick break. We're gonna play some promos, and when we come back, we are gonna get into not only the history of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. We all remember seeing years ago those futuristic drawings saying what the future is going to be. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. It was all started by a monster. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels. Earning my ears. A once in a lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. Oh no! What will we do now? R2-D2, you found a cigarette! Well, I don't think smoking is grown up at all. Oh, don't be so ridiculous, R2. Under rules are for Earthlings. 
All you need is a little rewiring. But children need to be fully immunized. I'm Jawa. Want to buy a droid? Show me what you got. Wampa, wampa, wampa! We picked up something. It's the Millennium Falcon. I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Growing up Star Wars. Yay! Available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Offer expires May 31st, 1980. Alrighty, folks, we are back, and it's time to, to sit down, take out a notebook, because we are going to talk about the history of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Pay attention, there will be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> when most people talk about the Crisis on Infinite Earths, they, they start with the story of Barry Allen, and I think that's a fair thing to do, since Barry Allen's very existence put DC on the path towards the crisis in 1985. But to me, and how my mind works, however, you have to go back a little further. All things being equal, crisis would have never happened if DC and All-American Comics hadn't established a shared universe between their titles with the creation of the Justice Society of America. Which is why I think it's kind of fitting that we're doing this show as an offshoot of Tales of the JSA. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the Flash and Green Lantern and the Sandman and Hourman and Hawkman and the Atom and even Johnny Thunder all lived in the same world. Before that, you could pretty much read their adventures without knowing that they were part of a larger world outside of the odd meta-reference to other DC books. Because... DC characters would talk about reading comics with DC characters in it. Uh, Scribbly, for example, uh, which is where you get the Golden Age Red Tornado from, she got her inspiration from a Green Lantern comic. Wildcat got his inspiration from a Green Lantern comic. So with a shared universe comes the concept of something Scott mentioned earlier, which is continuity. This was something that writers of the time tended to not so much ignore as just not care too much about. But it was there, all through the Golden and Silver Age. Especially in the worlds of Superman and Batman, where new concepts would be introduced and brought back with references to the earlier adventure featuring that new hero, or new villain, or new vehicle, or new hideout, or whatever. In 1951, the JSA went on their last case, and All-Star Comics became All-Star Western, much to the chagrin of Roy Thomas, who had just started subscribing to the book at the time. I love that story, and I feel really bad for him. <laughs> Five years later, or thereabouts, editor Julia Schwartz took a chance on superheroes again by reviving The Flash in Showcase Number 4. But instead of dusting off Jerry, Jay Garrick and bringing him back, Schwartz, along with writer Robert Kaniger and artists Joe Kubert and Carmine Infantino, introduced a new Flash in the form of Barry Allen. Barry Allen was a police scientist that was struck by lightning and bathed in chemicals, which gave him super speed. And here's the kicker. Barry was a comic book fan. In particular, he enjoyed the adventures of the J. Garrick Flash, 
adventures he read as a young man and held on to. The Flash was a hit, and soon Schwartz was dusting off other Golden Age heroes. Hal Jordan became Green Lantern in Showcase number 22, October 1959. These are cover dates, by the way. Thanagarian police officer Katar Hall and his wife came to Earth and became Hawkman and Hawkwoman in Brave and the Bold number 34, February, March 1961. Ray Palmer, who is now live action on the Arrow series, became the Atom in Showcase number 34, October 1961. And the Justice League, not Society, was introduced in Brave and the Bold number 28, which had a cover date of February, March 1960. Even though this new generation of heroes was carving out their places in comic book history, there were some fans that remembered the older heroes and wondered what had happened to them. Keep in mind that only five years separated the JSA getting cancelled and Barry getting bathed in chemicals. And let me, let me put it to you another way that will immediately date this episode, even though we've already mentioned the year. DC was gearing up for Infinite Crisis ten years ago. And to me, I don't know if Scott feels the same way. That feels like yesterday. Yeah, that does not feel very long ago. That's yeah, that's kind of scary. Now, it is fair to say that time is a relative thing, and that five years without Green Lantern and Flash and all that might have felt longer than it was. I mean, the years preceding Episode 1 felt like an eternity, even though now between Episode 1 and Episode 7, there's about the same amount of time as Return of the Jedi to Episode 1. So, but that's just a relative thing. I just think it's interesting that it was only five years between flashes. In 1961, Schwartz, along with writer Gardner Fox, thought it might be worth a lark to bring back the Golden Age Flash, which they did in the classic story covered on Tales of the JSA by me and me alone in that one episode where I did that, and we'll never do it again, Flash (laughs) of Two Worlds, which appeared in Flash number 123. The Flash, Barry Allen, is performing a super speed stunt to entertain kids when he finds himself on another Earth. One where his boyhood hero, Jay Garrick, was a person and not a fictional character. Fictional character. Uh, the two team up to fight a bigger threat and thus began what is what it became officially known as the multiverse. Flash met Flash on a regular basis. In Flash number 137, their meeting included a JSA reunion, and that team went on to reform and have annual team-ups with the JLA, beginning with Justice League of America issues 21 and 22, August-September 1963. Eventually, the two Earths became known as Earth-1 and Earth-2, with Earth-2 serving as the home of the Golden Age heroes, and Earth-1 being the home of the more contemporary versions of Superman, Batman, and et al. Et al.'s adventures are really hard to find, by the way. (laughs) To be fair, buying into this meant ignoring a few things, most notably the idea that Jay Garrick's adventures were detailed in the comics of Earth-1, which is fine for the Flash and Green Lantern and the Atom, because their Earth-2 counterparts were completely different people, unlike Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, who were Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, and Diana Prince on either world. The thing is, once you bought into the concept of Two Earths, it's easy to ignore such things for the greater good of enjoying the damn story. As time passed on, the multiverse grew. Earth 3, home of the evil versions of Superman and Friends in the form of the Crime Syndicate, first appeared in Justice League of America issues 29 and 30, August and September of 64. When DC acquired the rights to the quality heroes... Uncle Sam, the Ray, Phantom Lady, etc. They were shunted off to Earth-X, where the Nazis won World War II, as detailed in Justice League of America issues 107 and 108. 
DC then licensed the Fawcett characters and established that they were on Earth S, which stood for Shazam, and thus Captain Marvel and friends were part of a DC as detailed in Justice League of America issues 135 through 137, also covered on Tales of the JSA. Other Earths would pop up, including Earth Prime, which was the real world where DC characters appeared in comic books, and Earth C, where Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo crew lived. And that's how it was for years. Multiple universes, and even multiple futures. The world Tommy Tomorrow lived in didn't quite match up with the future Commandy lived in, which didn't quite fit in with the Legion of Superheroes. To some, this was confusing. To others, not so much. But if I've learned anything about how comics are made in the past 20 years, it's this. If a creator or editor or executive editor with enough clown wants to change things, then things will get changed. And the creator in this case was Marv Wolfman. Wolfman was a fan-term creator that started working for DC in 1968 with Blackhawk number 242. And he stayed with the company for several years, working on such features as Johnny Double, which he co-created with his friend Len Wein, and the Teen Titans. In 1972, Wolfman moved to Marvel and would spend the next eight years with the company, first as a writer and then eventually as one of the many editor-in-chiefs of that decade. He worked on a number of titles, but I think it's fair to say that Tomb of Dracula is probably his best-remembered work for the company. For good reason. It was a good book. Wolfman would create such characters as Blade, Bullseye, and the Black Cat during his time with Marvel, but a dispute with the company led him to move back to DC in 1980. As a writer or writer-editor, Wolfman would write a number of titles, including Action Comics and Green Lantern, but I think it's both accurate and fair to say that his breakout hit was New Teen Titans, a title he co-created with artist George Perez. Earlier in this thing that is rapidly becoming a lecture, I mentioned that Crisis began when DC first established continuity. But things really started with a letter by fan Gary Thompson that was published in Green Lantern number 143. Dear DC, Green Lantern's futuristic epic in number 136 to 137 was simply superb. It was a little depressing to learn that the Gordanians would still be buzzing around centuries from now. You mean the Teen Titans are never going to get rid of those pests? What I found most interesting was Marv's explanation for why they failed to recognize Green Lantern. And records don't exist before the Great Disaster, which would indicate that the Space Ranger and Iona Vane followed the OMAC Commandy Jackson timeline. Jackson the Rabbit? Really? <laughs> Timelines. However, Marv evidently didn't have access to showcase number 100. In their first team-up story, they do recognize each other. Oh, well... Maybe JCH, who was Jack C. Harris, can come up with a clever explanation to bail out Marv, Gary Thompson. And here was uh, Marv's response to that. First off, Gary, if you look at the editorial indicia this month, you'll see an interim change of editors. Len Wein is filling in until new editor Carrie Burkett takes over the editorial reins while Jack C. Harris moves over to DC's far-flung foreign department. So please address, address all future correspondence to Carrie, okay? Secondly, timelines and previous meetings. You aren't the only one who mentioned showcase number 100. Indeed, we knew about it, but we felt a decision had to be made. Any comic that somehow included Angel and the Ape, Scooter, Wendy and Willie, and Green Lantern and Space Ranger 
had to, in our consideration, be put outside all DC timelines. The story was obviously done as a fun get-together and really should not be considered as part of the quote-unquote true DC mythos. Really, funny animals and enemy ace don't go together unless you take it with tongue firmly wedged in cheek. At least that's the way we saw it. One day, however, we, meaning DC editorial we, will probably straighten out what is in the DC universe, excluding that which isn't in direct reference with Earth-1 and what is outside. In the meantime, we surely hope uh, to hear from you readers, and we solicit your help in this matter. Talk about opening a can of oversized worms. About our timeline, we also mentioned Space Rangers time existed after a war, which could also tie in with the Atomic Night era. See? We're open to all manner of thought. According to the introduction, in the back of Crisis on Infinite Earths number one, that letter stuck in Wolfman's craw, so to speak, and he reasoned that with multiple Earths and multiple futures, DC was too complicated for new and even older readers to understand. We're going to put a pin in that and get back to it later. Anyway, Wolfman and friend and fellow editor-writer Len Wein started working on the idea of cleaning up DC's confusing history. They presented their idea to executive editor Dick Giordano, who kicked the idea up the food chain to president and publisher Jeanette Kahn, and much to their surprise, their idea was approved. Things didn't proceed apace from there. What was originally called the history of the DC Universe required a massive amount of research. They hired Peter Sanderson to read... I'm not kidding, folks. To read every issue of every DC comic and take notes. Can I have that job? Yeah, part of me thinks that would be a job that might burn you out on comics. Part of me thinks that I would really like to find out if that would happen. <laughs> I mean, paid to read comics for a year. <laughs> to make matters even more amazing, all of Sanderson's notes were handwritten, as this was before the advent of, like, you know, personal computers became so commonplace. Sanderson filled three thick three-ring binders with his research, and holy crap would I love to see those notes. (laughs) The project taking so long to gestate turned out to be fortuitous, as what started out as History of the DC Universe, and became DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths, and finally Crisis on Infinite Earths, became the centerpiece in DC's 50th anniversary celebration. Comic book-wise, things started with the Monitor, who was a character Wolfman had created in his youth as the Librarian. This was a character that would catalog all of the hero's abilities and sell that info to villains. And we've been chronicling his appearances over the past few years, and I think it's fair to say that the idea behind the character evolved as Crisis Number 1 drew closer. And for the moment, that brings us to... Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Now, there's a lot more background info to cover, but we felt it was best to go through that material over the course of the series, as everything I went through was enough of an info dump on you. (laughs) You know, again, you talk about things building and, and the anticipation and everything that I had as a kid. That was part of it here was it, it, felt like i was gonna kind of you know have my cake and eat it too because i i will profess the multiple earth things not only did it never bother me it never confused me Mm -hmm. so i always you know whenever i read that and even today when i read that you know looking at articles going back and examining 
uh, crisis and the reasons why it happened and everything. And they cite that. Well, it was just too confusing. I never, even from a kid, I never bought that because I wasn't confused. Now, I can't speak to every other kid that ever picked up a comic, you know, a DC from that era. Maybe to other people, it was very confusing. I can see where maybe if if you just dove in, maybe it would seem, but it would seem to me that you yourself, you said you picked up Crisis Issue 5 as your first issue mm-hmm. and and got pulled right into it. So that seems to put the lie to this idea that, oh, it's just oh, too confusing, let's, let's retool it, let's consolidate it. However, the side of it that I always fully embraced was not so much the it's too confusing, was that everybody's kind of off doing their own thing mm-hmm. approach because Marv Wolfman talks about in the uh, introduction that he gives in this first issue talks about, you know, there's a great example. Let me see if I could find it. Cause I actually have it open here in front of me. There was this idea that he uses Atlantis as uh, yeah. his basis on this. You see DC mythology, which had grown helter skelter over the past 50 years has become rather convoluted. DC has been and remains a company of many editors, all of whom have good ideas of their own. Therefore, in the past, Editor A may have created Atlantis for their comics, while Editor B may have created a very different Atlantis for theirs. So Laurie Lamaris's Atlantis and Superman bore no resemblance to Aquaman's or Travis Morgan's or the Atlantis of the Sea Devils uh, may have swam across or the one Cave Carson may have stumbled into or the one Batman, well, you see the picture. That's where he sold me, Mm -hmm. was this idea of they were going to make it all make sense that, okay, we've been saying that these guys lived in a shared universe for 50 years. Now we're going to really make you believe it that the Atlantis they go to is the Atlantis, you know, that sort of thing. So that's where I really embraced this. However, and this, again, this is one of those odd things where maybe I shouldn't love this story as much as I do. I didn't realize the cost involved through the nature of incorporating everything and and consolidating everything that we would go from the multiverse concept to the single universe concept meaning that certain things that i had come to love as tropes and staples of the pre-crisis universe were going to go away Mm -hmm. forever and so you know when we were talking about this mike you know when we were comparing notes and just coming up with the nature of this. I remember you had this idea of questions that we were going to yes. ask both of, of each other and, and of ourselves and of crisis and, you know, and of our listeners of the fandom, you know, hard hitting questions in regards to crisis. That's one of the things I'm really looking forward to examining with this is, you know, our, our reaction to it today, our reaction to it then, and, and things like, you know, the cost. What Was it necessary? Did it have to happen? Uh, you know, are we glad it happened? Would we make it, you know, different? Would we make it never happen? You know, that sort of thing. So that's a lot of the fun of this to me yeah. is, is looking at those and really trying to give honest answers to those questions. Because that's something I honestly, I'll be, uh, I'll be perfectly frank. That's something, despite my love for this series, I've struggled with, you know, for the past 30 years is holding this up the way I do, was it worth that cost? Because as we're going to see, we're, we're seeing the end of the old world and, and the beginning of a new, and there's things that we lose along the way that I miss mm-hmm. to this very day. 
And uh, I, again, I think that's why this is so fitting a venue, Tales of the JSA, to cover Crisis on Infinite Earths, because those things that I miss most are, are that universe, if you know what I mean. Well, in that introduction, uh, in the very first paragraph after the quote from Flash number 123, Wolfman writes, Welcome to the first issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths, DC Comics' 50th anniversary 12-part maxi-series, which we will hope simplify, clarify, change, and improve the vast DC universe. So those are the four questions we're asking right at the top. Mm -hmm. Did it simplify the DC universe? Did it clarify the DC universe? Did it change the DC universe? And more importantly, I think, did it improve the DC universe? So when Mm -hmm. we get done with issue 12, we're going to ask those questions again. And we'll see where we are, you know, all these months from now when we get there. At least I think I think that would be a good thing to do. I I agree. I agree very much so. I think that's a, a brilliant approach to take to this. Okay. Wow. I <laughs> I have to say it again. I can't believe we're that here. Is so weird. <laughs> this is wow. Wow, I got I got the goosebumps. Alright, ladies and gentlemen. Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Are you ready for the end of the world? Here we go. Crisis on Infinite Earths number one is cover dated April 1985. It was actually on sale on the racks January 3rd, 1985. So it is now officially 30 years old. The original cover price on this is a shockingly low 75 cents. I actually thought it was more expensive than that until I looked back at the cover. That's amazing 75 cents no on ads this one. either. So, yeah, no ads in this book. This is what is known as a loss leader. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because uh, one of the things that uh, I had failed to put in my notes here, but I will definitely throw in at the end of the show, is where you can find this story reprinted. And uh, recently I posted up in our Facebook group. By the way, guys, if you if you don't know or if you're not a member of, we have a Facebook group for Tales of the Justice Society of America. Please come on over and join our group. It is ever-expanding and it's a lot of fun. We have some really good conversations over there. One of the things I posted there recently, speaking of Lost Leaders, is that you can find this issue uh, both on Amazon.com and on, uh, what is it, Comixology? Yeah. Uh, for free. Mm-hmm. You can actually get the digital copies of this for free. So, you know, you can introduce yourself to the beginning of the story for free, and I'm sure they're hoping that'll hook you and you'll purchase the rest of the series. Um. The cover on this is by the incomparable George Perez, and it is gorgeous. This is one of my all-time favorite comic book covers. Says on it, right at the top, you've got the Crisis banner. You've got uh, the 50, the special DC logo. It's the DC bullet, where the bullet is the zero, and then you have the five added in front of it. So 50, celebrating the 50th year of DC Comics. 12-part maxi-series, and it's colored in gold. Very nice. First issue, Spectacular, Crisis on Infinite Earths. And then at the very bottom, you have the credits, uh, Marv Wolfman, George Perez, and Dick Giordano. So the cover on this depicts an infinite number of Earths stretching off from the Earth that we see in the foreground, which is being destroyed, stretching off multiple Earths, stretching all the way back to infinity, going off uh, on the left-hand side of the cover, if you fold it all out, because it is a wraparound cover. So, let's see. How should we do this, Mike? Right to left or left to right? Uh, Let's do... um, 
right to left because that's kind of how right that's the left. cover right. stretching to the that's back the cover. progression all right so we have depicted on this cover we have the superman of earth 2 which i just love how he's looking here and what's really neat about this cover is not only does it have all these heroes and villains on it but all of them look distraught they look distressed Uh they're all reacting to the destruction and and the death going on all around them so we have earth 2 superman we have power ring the green lantern of earth 3 we have a brand new character called pariah we have Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, the Blue Beetle. We have uh, Dawnstar of the Legion of Superheroes, Cyborg of the New Teen Titans. We have Doctor Polaris. We have Geoforce from the Outsiders, Simon, who is a, vi- a villain of the New Teen Titans, Firebrand of the All Star Squadron, Superwoman of the crime syndicate of earth three obsidian of infinity incorporated alexander luthor who is the hero of earth three the psycho pirate a villain from earth two the john stewart version of green lantern killer frost an enemy of firestorm the nuclear man we have harbinger and a little creepy looking face almost looks like a, one of the gray aliens <laughs> that's meant to represent the monitor we have extending back to infinity we have even more characters we have ultraman the super the evil superman of earth 3 king solovar of gorilla city we have i presume that is owlman uh, by his yeah, boots yeah i always took it to be owlman as well and also we have johnny quick but not the earth 2 johnny quick this is the villainous flash of earth 3 so he's uh called johnny quick but he's actually like the evil version of flash of earth 3 did I miss anybody? I don't think so. That looks I like I think that's everybody. pretty much everybody. Great, great, great cover on this. And as I say, you can find this as a poster, and it's a, just a fantastic image. Love this so much. Our, our good friend, the Irredeemable Shag, made a joke when I posted uh, the preview image of this. Is uh, Wow, it looks like somebody's breaking all those marbles. <laughs> It does. It actually looks like one of those. Uh, what are those things where you where you pull one of them back and let it go? The the momentum machines. It's, yeah, you know, they go back and yeah, forth. I forget what that's exactly called, but uh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I call yep. it the thing Nan was playing with in Superman. Yes. <laughs> the summoning was written and edited by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Tony Tallin. Plot by Wolfman, Ween, and Greenberger. In the beginning, there was only one, a single black infinitude, so cold and dark for so very long, that even the burning light was imperceptible. But the light grew, and the infinitude shuddered, and the darkness finally screamed, as much in pain as in relief. For in that instance, a multiverse was born. A multiverse of worlds vibrating and replicating. And a multiverse that should have been one became many. As our story begins, we transition from the birth of the multiverse to the present-day planet Earth. Specifically, a planet Earth in its death throes. A crackling, ill-defined wall of pure, stark white encroaches upon this world and begins to devour it whole absorbing into itself buildings, cities, entire continents of the planet, 
along with the billions of terrified, skittering inhabitants who attempt in vain to flee the end of the world. To this scene comes a spectral figure in a green cloak with mad, darkened eyes who tells the humans that there is no hope, nowhere left to run to. He has been drawn here, forced to observe the death rattle of the universe, and he cannot run either, from the plague which swallows earth after earth. He attempts to save a small child, asking himself how much longer he must suffer this fate, witnessing these horrors, and he begs to die along with the child that is absorbed by the wall of white right out of his arms. The mysterious green-cloaked man yet lives, and as this world dies, he feels the pull calling him to yet another earth about to be swallowed by the dark. On the world we've come to know as Earth-3, home of the crime syndicate, evil counterparts to the Justice League of America, the wave encroaches. Ultraman, this universe's evil version of Superman, joins his cohort, Power Ring, evil version of Green Lantern, and they compare notes. Nature's gone insane, Power Ring reports, but Ultraman knows that it is more than just nature. It's their entire universe. Having scanned with his telescopic vision, Ultraman tells his partner that their world is all that remains, and he orders Power Ring to summon the rest of the crime syndicate. Elsewhere, Johnny Quick, this world's Flash, and Owlman, their version of Batman, confer, and Owlman admits that he's never felt so helpless. He and Johnny Quick wonder, after all these years and having made themselves the masters of this earth, is this really how it ends? What good are their powers if they're just going to die like everyone else? Soaring high above a major city, their world's sole superhero, Luthor, feels the same sense of helplessness as he watches people perish as what he calls the Wall of Antimatter dissolves everything it touches, including one of his old adversaries, Superwoman. Sensing the end, Luthor streaks to his home, an advanced lab, where he informs his wife, the former Miss Lois Lane, that it's only a matter of time now and that they must act quickly placing their infant son inside a tiny rocket ship. The mysterious green-cloaked man appears, crying, for he knows what is about to happen. Power Ring asks him who he is, and the stranger identifies himself as Pariah, and I mourn for this world about to die. Then I guess that's it, says Ultraman, and defiantly swears to do what he's done all his life, fight to the very end, and he dives into the antimatter field. Crying, Holding each other and declaring their love, the Luthors launch their infant child into the void, as Earth-3 is simply no more. The tiny ship traverses universes, coming to rest inside the satellite headquarters of the Justice League of America of Earth-1. But the headquarters has been abandoned, and there is no one there to find the sleeping child. Elsewhere, on another satellite, the Monitor tells Lila that it begins again, and that the time has come for them to act. She has been instructed what to do and who to summon, but she questions him. Why not collect both Supermans and Wonder Womans? Why not the most powerful of those that they've observed? The Monitor answers cryptically, saying he has analyzed all those with powers in the past, present, and future, and that their greatest hope lies with both heroes and villains fighting alongside each other, and in another alternative that even he could not have expected. He orders Lila to energize, and so she concentrates, reaching deep within herself, 
And as the universe divided and became many, so does Lila divide her power among many, becoming Harbinger. The Monitor watches as the various forms of Harbinger streak off through time, space, and dimensions unknown to fulfill her missions. And he wonders about their chances and about his own death, which he has foreseen. In Africa, Harbinger appears before King Solivar of Gorilla City and tells him, We have need of you, and after a brief struggle, disappears with the monarch, much to the alarm of the palace guards. In the 30th century, Dawnstar of the Legion of Superheroes pursues a woman's voice all the way to Suicide Slum, where a disembodied hand touches her and says, Come with me now, as they both vanish. At a war bond rally during the Second World War on Earth 2, Danette Riley, firebrand of the All-Star Squadron, finds herself confronted by a strange blue-garbed woman who tells her that she is Harbinger and, we need you, your planet is imperiled. Firebrand goes, but the disappearance of the two women does not go unnoticed. On yet another Earth, five thugs hold a woman hostage on the roof of a city building, shouting demands for cash and a helicopter to the police below, when, from out of a flying bug, drops the Blue Beetle, who makes quick work of the gunman. Harbinger appears, floating before him, and says, I need you, please come with me now, and he readily agrees. Elsewhere and elsewhen, 45,000 years ago, Harbinger searches for Arion, but is attacked by a mysterious shadow creature. The being seems to push itself inside of her very being, and shortly we see her resume her mission, but now her eyes are completely, solidly black. In the present, on Earth 2, Harbinger collects Roger Hayden, the second psychopirate, from his cell in a psychiatric, psychiatric institution. 45,000 years ago, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, finds his solitude among the creeping glacial ice flows disturbed by a mysterious flying woman. Thinking her a sorceress, he prepares to attack. Harbinger destroys the ice bridge he is standing on, and the mage falls. But he does not die, at least not yet. Not until he demands it. And so, at the last possible moment, Harbinger reacts, and the two vanish. Earth 1, The Present Firestorm, despite great doubts and much reluctance, frees his greatest enemy, Killer Frost, from her frozen imprisonment at the behest of Harbinger. Immediately, Killer Frost resumes trying to dispose of the young hero until Harbinger instructs the Psycho Pirate to use his powers, promising him that he'll feel no pain this time. Psycho Pirate removes his mask, changing his expression from one of madness to one of love. And suddenly, Killer Frost can't recall what on earth she and Firestorm were ever fighting about all this time. Suddenly, she is in love with him. On his satellite, the Monitor observed Harbinger's progress, fearing that he may not be able to stop his opponent, and fearing that the fate of the cosmos may rest in the hands of Lila, whom he now knows is destined to be his killer. The Monitor ends his observations and rises, strolling with purpose through his satellite headquarters, headed for the assembly area. In said chamber, an awesome collection of beings marvels at their surrounding. Pulled from all corners of time and space, a more bizarre gathering of superpowered beings would be hard to imagine. The Blue Beetle, Dawnstar of the Legion of Superheroes, King Solivar, Simon of the Fearsome Five, Geoforce of the Outsiders, Cyborg of the New Teen Titans, the Psycho Pirate, Superman of Earth 2, Obsidian of Infinity Incorporated, Firebrand of the All-Star Squadron, 
Green Lantern John Stewart, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, Firestorm, Killer Frost, and Dr. Polaris, who demands to see the Monitor now. The heroes, unsure of their surroundings, their purpose in being here, or of each other, compare notes, but before long are attacked by a legion of shadow beings, just like the one that infested Harbinger, and all bearing the silhouette of the Monitor. The heroes each use his or her own incredible powers and abilities to fight the shadow beings, but quickly find that while the shadows can harm them, they don't seem able to affect the shadows, and they suspect this has all been a setup, a cruel and deadly trap sprung on them by Harbinger and her master, the Monitor. Then, like a sudden swelling of the sun, a burning, blinding, coruscating light explodes in the dimly lit chamber, and the attackers fearfully flee from the deadly flash. The blinding moment ends, and in the afterglow, Geoforce sees a dark shape moving in. This attack was not planned, says the dark shape, but it was also not unexpected. Please do not blame poor Harbinger. Of all beings, she was not at fault. Here, let me dim these halls so you can see things clearly once more. A blue-gloved hand pushes a button, and for the first time, in all his glory, the full head-on image of their mysterious benefactor is revealed. And now, let me properly introduce myself. I am the Monitor, and I have summoned you here because your universes are about to die. This is only the beginning. Next issue, from the dawn of man to the great disaster. Good job, sir. I got chills. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. Who would like to... Why don't you go ahead and go first, Mike? I've been talking for quite a while. Um, The cover, uh, you know, we kind of talked about it before, but I love this cover. Uh, Actually, Mm -hmm. I don't think Crisis had a bad cover in its 12 issues. Uh, I, I prefer some more than others, but I think they're right. all pretty amazing. Uh, and this one at this point is pretty iconic. I love the worlds crashing into each other and all the characters just look fantastic. This is one of my uh, wallpapers on my computer right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, page one. I always loved this introduction to the series of uh, kind of taking it to the very beginning of time. Uh, kind of setting up the scope of the series that, you know, we're we're not just having like a modern day adventure of the Justice League meeting up with the Justice Society. This goes back to the very beginning of the universe and the multiverse. And uh, I, I like that. I also like on pages two and three, the disaster movie feel to this right. scene. And, and it's and it's pure Perez. Uh, I guess this world kind of got stuck in the 70s because <laughs> uh, of the dress and everything. But um you know, this is also the start of Jesus Pariah. Would you just shut up? Uh, I, I've never, I've never <laughs> liked this character. I just want you to know that from the very beginning of being introduced to him, I realize his importance to the series. Uh, I just think his whining is too whining. If that makes any sense. Well, you know, speaking of putting a pin in it, I want to put a pin in what you just said about his importance because <laughs> you'd argue that that's point. one of the things I'd like to, you know, one of the questions that I think we'll, we'll probably be addressing at some point during this coverage is, is he important? Uh, pages four through nine. This was actually my first real experience with the crime syndicate. 
uh, I, I'm trying to remember what came first. Me reading this or me reading their Who's Who entry? Uh, I was hmm. probably reading the Who's Who entry later, but from the beginning, I loved the idea of the evil versions of the JLA. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting to see them acting heroic at the end. And for years, I was curious about the story that introduced this Luther, the heroic one. And I love the fact that Lex and Lois send their baby to Earth-1, which mirrors Kal-El being placed in the ship and launched towards <laughs> Earth, the destruction of Krypton. Just this nice touch to celebrate, uh, meant to celebrate and rebuild the DC Universe. And it's funny because when I eventually read this issue, I think it built the crime syndicate up in my mind more than what they really were. Because when you really look at their appearances, they only have like four or five. They're not really, I mean, they, they, they you know, they were in that Crisis on Earth Prime. They were in the original, uh, cri- you know, Crisis on Earth 3 or whatever it was called. And they showed up in Secret Society of Supervillains. But they really weren't used all that much, mainly because, and we've joked about this in the past, they were sitting in limbo, doing right. nothing. Because, well, you know, that's between. A, oh, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Between this appearance here and the Perez drawn covers on the Crisis on Earth Prime story, it makes me realize what a, a shame it was that we didn't get an epic battle yeah. between the Justice League and the Crime Syndicate illustrated by oh, Paris, because yeah. I think that would have been awesome. Absolutely. Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, page 12, which I, my, I hate it when my fingers get sticky. I have always loved this sequence <laughs> of Harbinger, of Lila becoming Harbinger. It's got mm-hmm. a real 80s feel to it. Like, I almost hear... You probably didn't watch it, but there was a cartoon in the late 80s, one of the last things, uh, action figures, that I actually tried to collect when I was a kid called uh, The Bionic Six, uh, which was basically what if Jamie Summers and Steve Austin got married and adopted a bunch of kids and they all became Bionic. They're never called right. Steve Austin and Jamie Summers. It's it's Steve Austin and Jamie Summers. But they had... A, this... The, they had a thing where when they would activate their bionics, they had a ring and they would put it to a gauntlet on their chest and they would yell, bionics on, on, on. And this music would happen <laughs> and there was stock animation. And that's what I think of when I think of this. <laughs> this always reminded me of in the teen Titan, you know, in the new teen Titans by Wolfman uh-huh. and Perez, where there was that story where they went to, uh, Starfire's people and I I can't remember if it was an origin story or, or what but I remember they you know she had always used that the exclamation exile which was the name of her god and in that storyline we see exile we learn that she's like not like a Jesus figure but she's actually there yeah and I remember she was in like a stasis field or yeah. something like that and I remember it looking very much like this. So every time I see this page, it always kind of vaguely reminds me of that that cosmic New Teen Titans story with Exile. Uh, pages 13 and 14, I had no idea who Salivar was when I first read this issue. I kind of <laughs> liked him from the beginning. The idea of Gorilla City was always kind of interesting to me. Pa- and the fact that he is voiced by uh, David Ogden Styers on the Justice League cartoon was just perfect. Oh, pages 15 and the top of 16 i was familiar with the legion thanks to superman number eight in action 591 but this was my first experience with dawn star uh 
What I really loved about this scene is showing what Suicide Slum looked like in the future. And that it was still basically a slum. But just futuristic slum. Uh, Occupied apparently by nothing but storage facilities. Uh, I'm wondering if somehow like the popularity of Storage Wars... And all that on TV right now hasn't like just didn't last a thousand years essentially. Like, is there a storage <laughs> wars in the Legion universe? And and what would what would they buy? It's like you open it up and it's a bunch of intergalactic weapons. So, bottom of page sixteen and top of seventeen. This scene works for me now more than it did when I first read it because I actually know who Firebrand is. Right. And uh, I I think Perez draws a really good looking Firebrand. So, mm-hmm. uh, bottom of 17 and the top of to the top of 19 thank you for splitting it up like this folks this really makes it easy to, to, to take notes about uh, by the time I read this issue I was familiar with who Boo, Blue Beetle was thanks to Who's Who uh, I liked seeing his brief time as an Earth 4 hero I, I call shenanigans on Earth 4 a little bit because this is really all we see of it in Crisis there was never like an adventure on Earth 4 because before this America Comics uh, was publishing Charlton books. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of them. Ordway did a lot mm-hmm. of the covers. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I like Blue Beetle from pretty much from the beginning. I mean, he's kind of a Spider-Man character, acrobatic, descending from his bug. Uh, I, I just, I just love the design of the character, uh, and it's a damn shame that he met the end that he did. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, page 20 to the top of page 21. Because of my messed up reading of this series, I always thought of the Psycho Pirate as being on the side of the Anti-Monitor. So when I finally got to this issue, it was interesting seeing him as a Monitor recruit. Uh, page 22. Wish I cared more for Arion. <laughs> I really do. I have like the first like 20 issues of a series. Never read them. Uh, it's just mystical characters. Kind of. They don't give me hives. But uh, I'm just not, I'm not like chomping at the bit to read it. Uh, pa- right. Pages 23 and 24. I was familiar with Firestorm thanks to the Super Friends and the superpowers. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. I knew who this guy was. Uh, and it was it was one of those scenes I felt like when, when I first read the series, it's like when I saw Firestorm, there was an anchor. It's like, oh, I know that guy. It's like when you go to a party and there's like a thousand people you don't know. But then there's that one dude you used to work with. And you know you kind of get along, so you kind of hang on to that. That's the Firestorm was that to me, uh, and Killer Frost is hot. I don't mean that as a uh, joke. I mean Perez draws her very attractively. I know we're mm-hmm. never going to see the as Thomas DJ has called it the wedding dress outfit on the Flash series, uh, but I, I'd like to because uh, she's going to end up there. She the the current version Caitlin Snow is a character on the Flash. So ah oh, okay. Page 25, I love the composition of this page. The the shot of the satellite with these intermixed panels of, of the of the monitor doing his thing. It's just, I just love looking at it. Uh, pages 26 and 27, bam! What a fantastic two-page spread. I had mm-hmm. no idea who most of these characters were at the when I first read it, but it just didn't matter. Because Wolfman catches me up and gives me enough to work with. And uh, as always, love seeing the Earth Two Superman. He's a real, he's a real take charge guy in this whole thing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, I just absolutely love it. You know, it's like I have to admit, I'm getting a little bit impatient myself. Well, of course you are. You're the Earth Two Superman. So <laughs> uh, he he gets a little, uh, he gets a really great line in the second issue. 
page 28 through 30, this is a fantastic fight scene. Shows off everyone's powers and has some nice character beats, especially Frost flirting with Firestorm despite the action going on around her. It's just like, he turns into mattresses and she wants to make the, the superhero supervillain with two backs. So, um... <laughs> Page 31, really love the television screen effects at the top of the page, where the coloring, and I'm going to get into the coloring in a minute, where the coloring makes it look a little fuzzy, like you're actually looking at a television screen. And uh, page 32, great ending to the issue. The monitor stands revealed, even though if you had been following along, you you had seen them. Uh, To be fair, it didn't have as much of an effect on me because I had read the previous issues when I first read this one. But it all still works. And speaking of the coloring, at the at the time DC was experimenting with this new process called the flexographic process of printing. And uh, it was supposed to make the colors more vibrant, I think that was the idea behind it. Unfortunately, there was a flaw in the process. So if you go back and pick up this issue, depending on what where it was in the production run... It either looks really good or it looks kind of off. And mm-hmm. DC experimented with this brand new process on two of its biggest titles at the time, Crisis and Who's Who. And both of them, by like issue three of their series, dropped it and went back to the regular printing process. This is why, while I'll use my uh, one of my copies of issue one to like, you know, when I'm doing this or, or taking my notes, when I'm actually reading it, I have... I have the 98 hardcover by my bed and I have the absolute edition by my chair. Uh, So depending on where I am sitting, that's what I will read because the recoloring in those books are gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. And uh, I still get a charge out of this text piece. uh, Even if I don't wholeheartedly agree with Wolfman's thesis about why things need to change. I, I think this is a good example. You know, if... Some new writer coming up the DC ranks had had this idea. It would have never gotten beyond an editorial meeting where it was turned down. But because Wolfman was writing what is arguably probably DC's most popular book at the time, he had a little more clout to get this kind of thing done. So, right, right man, right place, right time, I guess. So, but that is really all I got on the first issue outside of uh, some differences uh, from the original outlines uh, that we can get into after you do your notes. Cool. I think it's going to be very interesting uh, noting both uh, where our notes parallel each other because there was a number of them where I was like, ah, that was my note, and uh, and where they differ from each other a little bit. Um, so starting right at the front of the book, the cover. Um, what can I say that we haven't already said? I, I adore this cover. It's one of my all-time favorites. I have it as uh, multiple posters. I have it as uh, a T-shirt that's coming in the mail. Uh, the only thing I don't have is I don't have it tattooed across my back. So you know, I, I just I love I this poster. I think it's great. That. Not yet. <laughs> uh, I love the gold-lettered version of the trade dress that's uh, that's on this. You know, trade dress for for lack of a better. Uh, better explanation of that but i I just i love the gold lettering i I think it just it pops somehow it looks really good on there um it's worth noting that perez himself hated the flexographic printing process uh so much on this issue that he almost quit 
And I think that's a, a good place to ask the question, what would Crisis on Infinite Earths have been without George Perez? Not the same. Yeah, I mean, do you think it would be what it is without him? Because there's no mistaking the fact that so much of what works for this book is Perez. Yeah. No, you would not have had the characters drawn into the panels that were there. This book would not have worked without Perez doing the artwork. It's it's one of those things where it had to happen with the creative team that ha- that that were on it at, mm-hmm. at the time. You you could not have replaced him because there was really no artist working at DC at the time that you know there were plenty of talented artists. Don't get me wrong, uh, some mm-hmm. very you know good people, but this was his type of thing where he liked to put stuff in the background. And when you're dealing with something that is the, you know, trying to get the scope of the entire DC pantheon, you need somebody who's willing to get in there and get his hands dirty a little bit. And without Perez, you know, I don't often say this, but without Perez, this story wouldn't have worked, would not have had the lasting effect that it had. I agree. I I agree wholeheartedly. I love how this starts. Same as you. Um, I like it for a slightly different reason, though. I like the biblical feel of it. You know, the first three letters or the first three words in the Bible are in the beginning. It's the same way with this. Now, I'm not going to comment, you know, religious aspects or anything like that, but I like that feel to Mm -hmm. this. I like the the scope and, and, you know, that just that. You know, I, I can't think of a better way to put it. that biblical feel that, you know, instantly gives it a weight as far as I'm concerned. And there's an element of this story that we'll be looking at in a future issue that, again, has sort of a biblical element to it. I, I like that because, again, it adds to that feeling of weight and scope and gravitas that the story has. I really like that. Um, on the flip side, though. At this time, with this printing process, with this type of paper, white on black lettering, I would have thought that they would have learned by now with books like Swamp Thing that it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It is almost impossible to read that first line. And I, I, it's, you know, I had to go to my omnibus to be able to read it. Now, that is the way that I will recommend that people, uh, you know, if you have the means... Read this story in that format. I think that is the best presentation of the story. I'm a little troubled by some of the recoloring on it, but it does pop. It looks really, really good. You know, it's funny. I never had an issue with this issue at all as far as the look of it. And I'd heard that complaint for years that Perez didn't like how it looked. It never bothered me until I've seen it in the omnibus and now I'm like okay now I get it now I see what he what he was saying because a lot of detail is lost unfortunately and it has a slightly um like not completely photocopied you know photocopied correctly look like if you like if you make a photocopy of something and your setting, you know, like your darkening setting is not set high enough and it has that kind of washed out slightly look to it. That's kind of what this looks like in the original published form. Like it just didn't copy fully. And uh, so I, I see what he's saying because a lot of detail is lost in the in the artwork and in the inking especially because of that, uh, that printing process. That said, uh, I don't know that I... Th- 
agree that uh, that this is Giordano's uh, best inking job on this. Man, a if lot of this him. looks like Mike DeCarlo. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I'm, you know, ever since you told me that, I'm looking at a lot of this and going, well, I see it here, but I don't see it there. So there there's a lot of this book, a lot of this book, that looks like Mike DiCarlo to me. Um, but then there are instances where I look at it and I see, no, 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 that's definitely Giordano. So I, I wonder if maybe he picked and choosed a little bit of, of which ones he did and which ones he didn't. It's possible. Uh, I mean, for crying out loud, the man was the executive editor of the company. So, right. You know, that I, I can't imagine how much it, you know, the, the amount of time this would have taken away from his other, you know, other jobs, basically. So uh pages two and three pariah um yeah i don't like this character i never much liked this character and it used to bug me for years it bugged me whenever i would read descriptions of pariah that always called him purple haired i'd be like damn it he's not purple haired he's gray haired it's just the coloring but no having seen this in the reprinted forms no he has purple hair which is just silly i i rather Um, like people with purple hair (laughs) Pages two and three, uh, as you said, I love, love, love the it's a disaster movie feel of this right out of the gate. It sets the tone of what we're, you know, what we're in for with this. I love the the panic on the faces. You know, the, the end of the world is coming right at them. You know, here's this giant wave of antimatter just swallowing up everything behind them. And these people are scrambling to run where there's nowhere to run to. I just, I love, look at the detail in this is incredible in this, you know, from the storefronts and the building fronts to just the little things people in the background are doing. It's just, I, I just can't imagine this series done by anyone else at this time in, uh, in DC history. Page five, Ultraman. I love how Ultraman actually, my mode is for page five and page five. He's not on that. I must be, be doing this out of the, no, my note's just wrong. It's page four, actually. Page four, Ultraman, not page five. He's not on that page, but uh, page four, Ultraman. Uh, now, I knew these guys from the DC Comics Presents annual and from that uh, JSA, uh, JLA, All-Star Squadron crossover that we covered on Tales of the JSA. So I knew who these guys were, um, but I was most familiar with Ultraman from that uh, that DC Comics Presents annual and uh, and just kind of had a soft spot for him from that. Uh, but I really like their portrayal here. Um, page six, panel two. Love the look of uh, Owlman right here. That is one of the few panels in this that really, really does look to me like it was actually inked by Giordano. I, I see his distinct style in there, and I really like that panel a lot. I always thought Owlman was a very silly uh, member of the crime syndicate but that panel shows well, how his look could actually work well, to be fair if you ever go back and look at his first appearance it's ridiculous to, to not put too <laughs> fine a point on it i mean it's, it's right. it, it was literally like an owl head on top of his head and it looked right crap so yeah this one looks a little bit better i think it would work better if it was lowered down to where the owl's eyes were his eyes but you know, accepting that it, it it looks better than I've seen it look any other time I've seen it. I mean, it. if if uh, Morrison's Earth Two graphic novel did anything, it gave us an Owl Man costume that we can all embrace. So <laughs> I love that design. <laughs> uh, page five, Superwoman, first casual casualty of the crisis. Uh, page six, 
and seven and eight and nine. I, I, as you said, I love the parallel between Alexander Luthor and Lois Lane of Jor-El and Lara sending their son to earth. You know, it's, it's clearly meant to evoke that, but I like right it. Down I, to I like it's the a scientist. Yeah. I, I really, I think that's very, very cool. Uh, page seven, uh, panels two and three. I love the little exchange here where, uh, you know, Ultraman and Power Ring are side by side. And Ultraman says, I used to revel in my powers, but now when I need them most, they're useless. That's ironic, isn't it? We spent a lifetime terrorizing this world, yet our last moments alive are spent trying to save it. I love, love that Ultraman becomes Superman at the end of the story for mm-hmm. you know, At the end of his life, he flip-flops, you know, and, and he... You know, seven and eight, you know, this to me, now I know it's Ultraman and I know it's the evil version and all that, but this to me, this is how a Superman goes out. If he's going to die, this is how he's going to die. He goes out fighting, holding true to what he's been and, you know, what he says here, what I've done all my life, I fight to the very end. And I, I just, that moves me. I really like that moment. It's another reason why Crisis works for me because much like, say, Star Trek, for example, another one of my favorite franchises, someone once described it, I think it was uh, DeForest Kelly, described Star Trek as a series of moments that, that touch you. And that's a lot of what this is. It's a series of moments that really work for me in the DC canon. And that this is one of those moments that really just it hits that Superman button for me. That, like, yes, that's Superman. Uh, pages 10 and 11. Uh, Lila wears a completely different outfit than we've ever seen her wear before, and uh, I kind of dig it. It's uh, it's like a dress version of her of the uniform, the unitard thing that she was wearing in all the other appearances, with like frilly things on the sleeves and all. It's just a different look for her. And those panels at the bottom, she looks like uh, you know, like she's in a, like a '80s rock video or something. It's just, but it's good. I, I really like the way that that Perez draws her. She's very attractive. Actually, most of his women in this are very, very attractive. Page thirteen. Um, I think this was my introduction to Gorilla City. I can't remember for sure. I knew of characters like Grodd, but I don't know if if the appearances of him you know, with him that I'd ever read referenced Gorilla City or not. I, I just don't remember, but I'm pretty sure that the first time I read this issue, that was my introduction to, you know, Gorilla City and Solivar and this whole thing. And uh, this was one of the things I caught in this. You know, I was telling you, Mike, before we got started with the show, that I poured through the original issue and the reprints to see if there were any differences, you know, things where they'd gone in, maybe George Lucas things. The only thing that I caught was that in the original issue, the original publishing, Solivar was misspelled throughout the entire issue, and they've corrected that in the reprints. Kind of a weird Uh, thing to get wrong consistently. Yeah, no, no joke. Yeah, they spell it in the original issue. They spell it uh, S O L I V A R, but it's actually S O L O L V A R. Solovar. O V A R. Yeah, Solovar instead of Solivar. Yeah. Um, I love that the first hero that's recruited is an ape. <laughs> just, well, you know why they call him cool. Solovar, right? Because one lady can't tie him down. <laughs> you know, this raises an interesting question. Was Wolfman purposely picking odd characters as opposed to the obvious, you know, the powerhouses? Because, 
you know, Lila herself raises that question with the monitor. Why not just, you know, she says it on page, uh, on page, which page is this? 12 page. No page 10. Why not both Superman's and Wonder Woman's? Why not the most powerful of those we've, we've observed, which you would think would be the logical thing to do. But instead, as we see in this issue, I mean, you honestly, I, could you come up with a more diverse well, selection of characters? And I kind of wonder if that's the point. I, I think it is. I always took it that because we're celebrating DC's entire history, you know, you, you want to basically touch on, you know, everything about the DC universe. So you have mm-hmm. Gorilla, you know, a representative of Gorilla City. And you have, you know, people from Earth 1 and Earth 2 and Earth 4, which didn't exist until Crisis. Uh, you know, you have all of that. But but here's the thing. And and I really kind of... I, I didn't struggle with this. It's not like I had to prey on it or anything. But uh, I, I really was thinking about the lineup he, he put together. And she goes, why not both Superman or, bo-, you know, and both Wonder Woman's? And my answer to that is, we got to hold some people back. Because if this goes wrong, and we kill Superman and Wonder Woman, all of them, right away, who's going to be our heavy hitter to come in as a cavalry? Mm. So, yeah. you put, and if you look at this this uh, this collection of characters, they all work for what he's doing. Right. They all have a purpose. They all have different types of powers. You know, you bring in Obsidian because of shadow creatures. You bring in the Earth 2 Superman because you need a Superman. But, let's face it, love the Earth 2 Superman as we do, he is not as powerful as his Earth 1 counterpart. And, right. you know, you bring in Jon Stewart because he's the Green Lantern of the time. It's it's a weird collection of characters, but when you break down their abilities, they are a good strike force. Right. Right. And I, I can't help but wonder if, to a certain degree, they're also cannon fodder. <laughs> Like, you, we, we, you know can, what I mean? We, we, can, we can lose these guys and it's okay because we've got... Exactly. Yeah, exactly that. You know, as, as harsh as that sounds, uh, you know, strategically, that's not a bad plan. As you say, you save your heavy hitters for the backup. But, you know, you, 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 put, your, you put your footmen, you put your soldiers in the front. And I can't help but wonder if, you know, in the internal logic of the story, if that's why we got who we got, you know, leading this off. Pages 16 and 17, uh, Firebrand never looks so good. She looks really good here. Reading this for the first time as a kid, pages 18 and 19, I got so damn excited to see the Blue Beetle because I knew this guy. I knew this guy. I had a, a copy of, um, there was a company, I can't remember if it was Charlton themselves or if it was another imprint, but somebody was reprinting old Charlton's um, under the imprint of modern comics. And so I, it was kind of like, like when Whitman would do reprints of DCs, you know, but this was uh, this was an imprint called modern comics, which I, I just can't remember if they were actually put out by Charlton or if they were just licensing Charlton reprints. I really don't know. I don't remember. But anyway, I had some copies of modern comics reprints of old blue beetle stories from Charlton, uh, you know, just a, a handful of issues. But when he popped up in this, I was so excited because this was this was somebody I knew, whereas a lot of these guys, it was my first exposure to them. Or I may have seen them, but I really didn't know them. I, I hadn't latched onto them. But Blue Beetle, I knew. And Blue Beetle, right out of the gate, I thought was really cool. So when I turned the page and I see Blue Beetle, I just got really excited. I'm like, oh, my God. I like, you know, I just I instantly liked this guy. I, I got what he was, which was basically 
you know, Spider-Man from a different company, essentially. Um, also, very important to point out here on page 18, panel 4, first appearance of the bug. This earned me my one and only published letter to DC Comics in Who's Who, the uh, the loose-leaf format, the one that you could pull out and put in binders and everything. And one of those editions, I think it's the one with Lobo on the cover, I have a letter published in there pointing out, no, 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 you're wrong. I actually pointed out two of them, I think, in that letter. There was a Blue Beetle, uh, the bug first appearing here. Or actually, I think what it was is I speculated because they had pointed out that the bug's first appearance was in Blue Beetle number one, which, you know, Blue Beetle gets his own DC title shortly after the crisis. And I said, well, I don't know where its first appearance is, but I know it appeared as early as crisis number one. As it turns out, crisis number one is the first appearance, but I just didn't know that for sure at the time I sent the letter. And then the other thing was pointing out that um, they had gotten the numbering wrong on first appearance of Amethyst. Because they, they got it right that it was an issue of the Legion of Superheroes, but they got the issue number wrong, and I just I corrected that as well. Uh, so I was the nitpicker guy way back then. <laughs> uh, Blue Beetle's World does not get a designation, which I just think is important to point out, because, yeah, the whole Earth 4 thing always bugged me a little bit, too, because they, they don't make that. I think that does come up later in the series, but at this point, it's not pointed out. It has no designation. And his goggles would change post-crisis. Here he has the triangular goggles, whereas later they would be more bug-eyed um, and and more, uh, to me, they were kind of more Spider-Man-like. And, uh, and definitely you can see right away in this short little sequence by Perez, you know, that that's exactly what they're going for in both the art and uh, Wolfman's writing, you know, them both having worked on uh, on Spider-Man. Sirs, just wanted to let you know about a couple of teeny little errors I spotted in my favorite part of Who's Who. The first appearance section in issue number one. Amethyst's first appearance is listed as Legion of Superheroes number 296. Probably just a typo, but it's actually 298. The one I'm really curious about is Blue Beetle's Bug. Again, issue number one lists its first appearance as Blue Beetle number one, June 1986. I was not a big follower of Blue Beetle's Charlton Adventures, but I do know that the bug does appear as early as Crisis on Infinite Earths number one, April 1985, page 18, panel four to be exact. <laughs> like I said, minor stuff, keep up the great work. I love this series. Scott H. Gardner, Feltz Mills, New York. Yep. Uh, we love this series too, Scott, and thanks for the corrections. Assembling a massive work like Who's Who is at times a Herculean task will occasionally make errors. Readers who write in with with briefly stated corrections can expect to periodically see their letters in print here for the benefit of our fans. Scott, you're not the only fan who pointed out that Blue Beetle's uh, bug was first seen in Crisis on Infinite Earths. We goofed. Sorry. <laughs> and if you're like, Mike, how the hell do you have that? I have my two binders of the Who's Who right here at my desk. And what I did is I separated them by character, and I used the covers to separate them. So I just happened to have that right here. So <laughs> That was a go. walk down memory lane. I was about to say, that must have been weird to hear me start to read it. <laughs> that was cool. 
Page 19, panel 8. Uh, to this day, I still don't know what the hell I'm looking at here. I always assumed it had <laughs> something to do with the art, but looking at it in the omnibus, in the nice cleaned up art, does not clarify. What am I looking at? It looks like Shark Man is biting her, is what it looks like. It's just <laughs> awkward. Today, that would have been done very differently. <laughs> and probably not for the better. Right. Uh, I don't know if I knew who the psycho pirate was when I read this for this, uh, for the first time. I suspect this was my first introduction to him, but I just don't remember. Um, this is the most Arion I've ever read. <laughs> page, <Wow. laughs> page 23, panel one. Now you can appreciate this more if you look at it in the omnibus, but looking at it here as well in the original issue, how long did it take to make that picture? Mm-hmm. I mean, it that had to take friggin' forever. All right, to try to paint a mental picture for you folks, it's a it's a vertical strip of artwork by Perez. It's firestorm streaking over the city, but he's essentially flying from the top of your page to the bottom of your page. It's just a strip, and he's streaking over the city. And the the city is drawn in abstract. What makes up the cityscape? is the lights of the buildings. So if you've ever seen, there's a burn cover very similar to this with the black-suited Spider-Man where the cover is just black and white. And it's Mm -hmm. the white that makes up the cover image, if you know what I'm saying. So looking at this same panel and the fact that somebody had to go in and like illuminate every one of these windows in order for you to make sense of what it is in the background... How long did that take? I mean, that's it's just crazy. That's the level of detail that's being put into this book, and I love it. Page 23, uh, have to be said, I love Killer Frost. Love, love, love Killer Frost. She's always been one of my favorite bad guys. Uh, I knew her from early issues of uh, Fury of Firestorm, and of course from that awesome, awesome, awesome uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez illustrated issue of DC Comics Presents, where Firestorm uh, fights the mind-controlled Superman, uh, one of my favorite issues of that entire series, and she was the bad guy in that. I think that was it the is, first time I ever saw her. It is also worth noting that this is the second Killer Frost. Mm, okay. I, I always forget that there were two of them. They looked exactly the same. Right, didn't so they have the same origin, too? Kind of, and basically... After they created the second, you know, Shag, of course, is the expert on these things. What happened to the uh, first one? She she died of something, I right? I think she died. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember. I should have, you know, you would think, hey, Mike, you did all that research. I think that... Why didn't you research that? Uh, I don't know. The disease that made her Killer Frost was killing her, I think. And I think it finally did kill her. I, I don't think it was exactly like a cancer, but it was something like a, like a degenerative disease that finally... I think. Man, it's that's stretching the brain muscles it's been a while since i've read that uh page 25 i've seen it speculated that the monitor is actually talking about the crime syndicate here but i'm not sure i buy that what i mean is um you know it's made up of it's a splash page essentially inset with six little dialogue boxes but in the in the main part of the page he says already another earth has perished and five heroes i needed are gone 
So like I say, I, I've, I've read it some places where people are saying he was talking about the crime syndicate. Uh, I don't know if I buy that or not. Could be, could not be. I don't know. Just thought it was. I promoting. like it better if it's not. Right. Because it kind of just uh, highlights, you know, how dangerous this is. We lost five characters we didn't even know existed mm-hmm. and they were apparently important. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. Pages 26 and 27, there's just no other way to say it. This is flat friggin' awesome. I love, love, love the spread of all the heroes assembled in the Great Hall. This, uh, looking at this as a kid for the first time, and, and again now, every time I look at this, really takes me back to Marvel superheroes contents of, of champions every time I see it. I don't know, I have no idea if that's an intentional thing, if it's a, if it's a callback, an homage, or, or if they were even aware of it. But every time I see it, it's kind of what it mentally takes me back to. Because um, that was one of my first introductions to the Marvel Universe. It was one of the earliest things I ever bought off the rack was uh, Contest of Champions. And right out of the gate, you've got everybody who was every, you know, anybody in Marvel at the time in one room. And this is not exactly that, but this is pretty representative of the DC Universe as a whole in microcosm. And, and I like that feel. Uh, let's see. What else have I got here? Uh, I don't know if I knew who Dr. Polaris was and you know, I'm still not all that sure who the hell he is today. I know he's a bad guy. Who does he fight? Uh, he was Green Lantern. Villain. Green Lantern. Okay. I've seen him around, but I think whenever I've seen him, he was always in somebody else's book. Cause I think, didn't he fight, um, damage at one point? Uh, uh, Ray, he fought the Ray. The, okay. Yeah, so I, I was never, I, you know, like I said, I know he's a bad guy, but I was just never really sure whose bad guy he was, you know. Uh, what else have I got? Page 26, Superman says, After all, what could threaten birth, uh, both Earth 1 and Earth 2? Um, Every JSA, JLA team-up threatens Earth 1 and Earth 2? So what, what the hell are you talking about, Superman? <laughs> I just thought that was kind of a strange line coming from him, because doesn't he constantly fight threats to both Earths? Like every yeah. year fights at least one of them. Uh, page 27. I love that uh, Firestorm's thinking about hitting that. <laughs> I just think that's great. Yeah, it, 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 it's basically like this. You know, she's the bad guy, but then you kind of look and you... It, it's it's a heterosexual guy thing, right. I realize. But it's just like one of those things where it's just like, man, you know, she's tried to kill me, but, you know, man, she's kind of... And and he's a teenager, so he probably hasn't date. Well, he dated. He dates Doreen Day, who is kind of crazy. But uh, you know, you know, you, you know, everybody needs that one. You know, every every guy and and, and girl too. We'll we'll stretch. We won't make this just purely a heterosexual thing. But everybody needs that one, uh, you know, psycho relationship that is not like a danger to you <laughs> to kind of show you that maybe you need to be a little more discerning right? with that. But I think the sex would have been worth it. Now, it's a minor spoiler, but this does wear off. I can remember being disappointed when it wears off. I actually think they're a cute little team. <laughs> I'll agree with that. Page 28, last panel. I love Superman and his philosophy. When all else fails, just punch shit. I love that. That 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 should be my life philosophy. When all else fails, just punch things. Yeah, that'll land you in jail. Well, so. yeah, but <laughs> he gets away with it. But no, I love that. Superman of Earth 2 is very old school in this. <laughs> I love that. I really like his approach. Um, 
Let's see. Pages 31 and 32, The Reveal. Um, Mm -hmm. Just got to be said, I think this is one of the best endings to a comic ever. This is one of my favorite cliffhanger endings. Just everything he says here. And now let me properly introduce myself. I am the Monitor. And and I have summoned you here because your universes are about to die. I mean, if that doesn't make you want to pick up the next issue, I don't know whatever is going to. And uh, I I would really like to thank... uh, you know, Marvel and Fox for letting uh, Hugh Jackman step in to play the monitor here at the very end of this issue. <laughs> does he not look like Hugh Jackman? I really think he does bit. right there. I could, I, could, I could totally see that. <laughs> That's my notes on Crisis Number One. I kind of like it just a little bit. Yeah, really. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> Uh, to all wow. those uh, people that I've ever taken crap from that said how negative I am all the time, do you notice I didn't have one negative thing on this entire book? Everything was a positive. I love the, this book. You're going to make me the bad guy in this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, somebody's uh, got to be. One of the one of the great things about the absolute version of Crisis that came out in 2006 that my lovely wife got me for Christmas several years ago is that it came with this thing called the Crisis Companion, which is yes. this little thin hardcover thing that is just chock full of crisis information. And, and it goes from reprinting the two indexes, uh, which I never thought would happen, uh, to a listing of every al- alternate Earth. And halfway through reading it, I realized that when they were considering an alternate Earth, they basically factored in like imaginary stories and stuff. Uh, but they also had, during the history segment, uh, Wolfman's original outline, uh, original breakdown, and plot to Crisis Number 1, which were two different things. And I thought it would be kind of worth a lark to look at those and see what the difference was from planning stage to final product. Uh, in the first issue, not a whole lot changes. And I, I think it's pretty... You know, it's kind of funny that as the series progresses, you know, the ch- the changes of what he originally was going to do become more fast and furious. But looking at the first detailed breakdown and plot to Crisis Number 1, it's the one that changes the least from concept to execution. In reading the first breakdown, the biggest difference is that there was a scene planned with Cyborg at Titan's Tower. Which kind of makes sense, you know, Wolfman and Perez are doing this. You know, you would have your, your big... You know, one of your Titans characters, you know, uh, showcased. <laughs> the actual plot is actually pretty much what we see uh, in the first issue as well. It's interesting to note that Lila transforming into Harbinger is described as a mystical ceremony. When, to me, it's full-on sci-fi in the final product. Uh, there's not really too much myst- uh, mystical about that. Uh, there, The scene at Titan's Tower that I talked about before is fleshed out. Cut to the Titans in battle with the Fearsome Four, everyone but Dr. Light. The scene is a nuclear reactor. Mammoth smashes Cyborg through something big. Cyborg lands before Simon. Simon smiles. What can I do to you now? We see Cyborg's suit melting. Then we see his atoms being scattered. Simon says, (laughs) Simon says, uh, I can destroy you in so many ways. Note, the other Titans are not nearby now. Simon says, I know. Just then he kneels over in pain. Lila is behind him, her hands glowing, sparking. Cyborg, fully formed here, says, Who are you? Lila says, You will learn that later. I have need of you. She grabs Cyborg's hand to help him up. 
and she and Cyborg and Simon vanish. In pops a frog, forming into Gar Logan, who calls out, Victor? Yoo-hoo! Vic! Where in blazes are you? Gar must be out chasing one of the four. Uh, Gar says he must be out chasing one of the four, swings back into the scene with the others. So, <laughs> deleted scene. Does this wind up being in that Tales of the Teen Titans story that we'll eventually cover? Uh, I don't remember, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah, because it seems to me that they're battling, I want to say they're battling the Fearsome Five in that one? Fearsome Four, Fearsome Five, somebody like that. But yeah, it's been so long since I've read that, I can't remember. So yeah, that's going to be interesting to see if this deleted scene became a full-blown issue. In the plot, the town Blue Beetle lives in is called Ditko City. Hmm. Which is neat, as he was created by steve ditko right uh, oddly enough the massive fight at the end is not in the original plot uh, after fire after the firestorm scene all of the characters lila collects and several harbingers are standing around before the monitor shows up uh, and i was wondering if the fight on the satellite was tra- traded for the one with cyborg to kind of give the issue a more action-packed ending could be so, originally this issue was supposed to be 25 pages but to fit everything in they bumped it up to 32 no ads no ads but yeah i i you know as we go on the differences are going to be like whoa really but uh this one just just little little nudges here and there essentially uh i had a note here on the reprintings this is from mike's amazing world of comics over at dcindexes.com Crisis on Infinite Earths has been reprinted in two different hardcover editions. There was the hardcover that came out in the late 90s that is uh, in that silver slipcase edition. Uh Um, And then there, of course, was the uh, Absolute uh, that Mike and I are both using uh, for this episode, which, uh, damn, I love this thing. I I Uh saved opening this until we got to this coverage. So now this is really my first exposure to it damn i'm glad i broke down and bought this thing because it's beautiful it is so so nice um it's also been reprinted as a trade paperback so if you're looking for it uh inexpensively it is available as a trade paperback and uh it was also uh reprinted as part of that millennium celebration that dc did a number of years ago where they had different millennium editions of some of their uh their milestone comics Mm -hmm. that they had done over the years they're important comics. They kind of left Milestone out of that. Well, yeah, that's how I should. Sorry, yeah. I forgot joke. Milestone yeah. was an imprint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're 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 bigger comics. Uh, that they and there was two versions of that. Yeah, uh, there was a regular one, and then there was one that had kind of a gold embossed feeling to it. Right. Uh, I have all of these because uh, I'm I'm just like that. Uh, I the trade paperback was actually the first one I bought, and then I got the absolute, and then. Just because I really wanted it, I got the slipcase silver one because I figured, you know, I found it like for 20 bucks at one point on eBay. So I figured I needed to snap that up. Uh, the prettiest is the Absolute. Mm-hmm. It just has, it has the best coloring and everything. But that 2001 trade paperback release, I, I will never get rid of it because I got it signed back in 2006 by Wolfman and Perez. <laughs> but my absolute is also signed Perez, and he did a sketch of the Earth 2 Superman in it. Wow. So, again, things I will never get rid of. <laughs> well, the um, at Megacon this year that's coming up, 
you know, very shortly, both, um, both uh, George Perez and Marv Wolfman are going to be there this year. So uh, if I make it, which I'm hoping to, then uh, I'm hoping to uh, get something. I'm not sure what yet, but something crisis related uh, signed by those guys would, uh, would totally make my day. So I'm hoping that I can have that, you know, make that happen. And uh, if I get that opportunity, I'll even uh, I'll bend their ear about the possibility of maybe having them on at some point to talk a little crisis Ooh, with yeah. us. I, guess I think that would be a lot of fun as well. I know at least one other creator that we could probably get really easy who was involved in crisis uh, in the latter stages. So I think that uh, I think that could be worked out because we need to talk to him anyways because of uh, something called Infinity Incorporated. Mm. So. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a number of, of creative types that I would like to, to get in at some point during our crisis coverage to just kind of pick their brains about things. Love to talk to Roy Thomas about the whole thing because, you know, of everybody, he was the most affected, I think. So, uh, Little preview, folks. When we get into the crisis episodes of Tales, because uh, both Infinity Incorporated and All-Star Squadron both played heavily into the crossovers, we're going to read you Roy Thomas's memos from this time. Mm. There are some wacky ideas in here. <laughs> uh, and I'm not saying that to make fun of him. It's just like you see how something played out and then you see how the writer was toying with other ideas. And you're like, wow, that's uh, that's the road not taken. So, right. <laughs> this is yesterday's All-Star Squadron. <laughs> so to tie into another Two True Freaks, I guess... Is that it? I had one other really quick thing that I wanted to throw out there. Now, this is going to seem a little strange because this is referencing uh, the last episode as it stands as we record this. But, of course, the the listeners have now heard an additional episode. Anyway, what I'm talking about is two episodes ago in Tales of the Justice Society of America number 89, the February 1985 um, episode, uh, we were, I was doing the crisis management, uh, in that episode. And one of our good friends, one of our faithful listeners, Mr. Mike Voiles, the Mike behind Mike's amazing world, uh, website and podcast, uh, got in touch with me and let me know that I left something out. And what he noted to me was, uh, an issue of warlord warlord number 90, which does actually contain a pre-crisis monitor appearance. Here's the thing, is that I'm using both the original and the one that's reprinted in the Omnibus, I'm using the uh, official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover handbook for those. And so not only does it contain errors, it, as I feared, contains omissions as well. Uh, Because of Mike getting in touch with me and... Uh, letting me know this and i had discovered something that i never realized before but on mike's amazing world he actually if you go into uh any of the pre-crisis monitor appearances the monitor is listed as a character uh in those appearances and you can follow by clicking on either the last appeared in or uh next appears in um hyperlinks that he has you can discover all of the... I never realized this before. And so I was using that and going through it, and not only um, did I follow through and, and kind of check mentally to make sure that I'd covered everything, but I caught yet another one beyond the one that Mike pointed out to me, which, of course, was Warlord number 90. There's another one that uh, is an issue of um, World's Finest. 
So I really, really appreciate Mike pointing these out to me because I have long suspected that there may have been omissions from that list. But on the other hand, I'm now angry with Mike because now I no longer have all the appearances in pre-crisis monitor appearances. Now I lack two of them. I lack uh, Warlord 90 and uh, World's Finest. I think it was number 314, which I was shocked to find. I do not have. I thought I had all of the issues of uh, World's Finest leading up from about 300 to the end of their series, but I do not have that one. So I'm now officially on the hunt for those. But anyway... Uh, in a future episode, uh, we will, of course, be covering that um, World's Finest. We haven't missed it yet, so I actually could have gotten away with it. I actually, you know, if it hadn't been for if you it meddling wasn't kids. For that pesky Mike voice. <laughs> I could have gotten away with you guys never knowing that uh, that I missed that one, uh, because that one's in the future yet. But the one for Warlord 90, yeah, missed it. I had no idea. I've never even seen that on an official list before. So, yeah, that was kind of a, a shocker to me that, you know, it's out there. So, uh, again, I'm going to put the call out to the listeners. Uh, if you're up on this stuff and you're a fan of Crisis and Monitor and all that sort of thing, if you know of ones that we missed, please write in and let us know. I really do want to be a completist with this stuff. So, thank you, Mike. I really, really do appreciate you uh, letting me know about that because I, uh, I had no idea. And uh, I actually Googled it after you pointed it out to me and i still don't find it in any lists out there so i think uh i think fandom as a whole has missed that one buddy so good catch Mm -hmm. good on you absolutely well folks that is the end to this abbreviated and shortened version of uh coverage of (laughs) crisis number one i really apologize that we didn't take the time need no i'm just kidding i appreciate anybody who's lasted this long into the yeah no joke going to be a desiccated corpse edi- editing this thing. So. I just noticed the time. Holy, have we really been talking that long? Wow. Yes, we have. But anyways, uh, in a couple weeks, the Tales of the JSA number 91 will come out mm-hmm. with the uh, All-Star Squadron Infinity Incorporated and uh, a, a, a somewhat crisis management thing because there's an issue we need to talk about that came out that month. Yep. But next month, folks, don't have a release date yet, but we will be covering Crisis on Infinite Earths, number two. Probably won't have as big of an introduction as this one. Probably. Maybe. Nah, it will. Maybe, maybe we'll just it start. Totally will. You know, no, what, what we'll do is we'll just, we'll just do what Mike Voiles is doing and start it, you know, <laughs> the first DC Comics ever and start covering <laughs> them issue by issue. To fully understand this, you have to go all the way back to New Fun number one. <laughs> Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna end it on this. Uh, John Wilson, who is a good friend of both of us, uh, is, is a man that has a little bit of OCD when it comes to comics. If, if you tell him he needs to read something, he wants to read everything involved with it. And I almost joked uh, in one of the little preview teaser things that I released for for this show. That, by the way, John, if you really want to truly appreciate this podcast, you have to read every DC comic ever. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted that moment where he would consider it. And uh, oddly enough, I, I happened to have breakfast with him the other day because his family was coming through the area uh, on their way back to Jacksonville. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I would have had that moment. So <laughs> <laughs> You're a cruel, cruel man. <sighs> but I'm so good looking. You have reached the end of another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
You can find this show under the Tales of the JSA feed at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can find a plethora of fine programs that span the range of geek subjects like giant monsters to time lords to anime to movie commentaries. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Comics Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Earning My Ears, Back to the Bins, and Growing Up Star Wars. Mike is also on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Longbox, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos, so much so they occasionally address themselves in the third person. If you want to address them, send email to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click the PayPal link. Donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're sponsoring, add a personal message if you want, and you will be an official sponsor of the very next episode with your message read right in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Become a show sponsor today! You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks family as a whole when you shop at Amazon. Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of the sale will get kicked back to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the JSA Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths.